tonight on Protexploitation. Hollywood, the dream, and the nightmare. No, I mean it. I'd love to have someone to love or someone to love me. It ain't easy being a freak. And we're supposed to do this by treating ourselves to a fancy woman hunt, by turning them loose, hunting them down, and murdering them in cold blood. What you are about to see now is the second degree of torture. We should just bear our breath to the wind and let nature take its course, right? everybody and welcome to Project Exploitation. My name is Nick Cheney and I am your host for this evening and many other evenings. <laughs> well, should you choose to spend them with me? I don't bite. <laughs> uh, with me, of course, is Dan Jeremy Brooks, my partner in crime, my co-host, my other projectionist. <laughs> I'm running out of ideas. How are you, Dan? Vampiros Lesbos. Vampiros Lesbos. You're in a house in Anatolia where she'll suck out all your blood. It's a secret agent man by P.F. Sloan. It's okay. Just do my own. Just my own take on it. Yeah. I'll give you credit where credit's due. When you were doing the opening bars, I knew I knew it, even though I couldn't place it. And I feel like. Considering how much of a stretch that was, uh, you su- <laughs> you seceded at least on that front. So, very good job. Well, thank you. Uh, I think some of the inspiration may have come from. Um, there's a song in the Repo Man soundtrack by the band The Plugs, which mm. were uh, uh, I think all of their songs were Spanish language. Uh, anyway, great band. Steve Berlin went on to be in Los Lobos, but anyway, The Plugs was kind of a punk band, and they did a cover of Secret Agent Man, but it was. Uh, uh, it was uh like God, what was it? It was like you know, uh, hombre secretos. Uh, That's what it was. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I just started thinking about that and okay. the vampires lesbos <laughs> and thus and such, and it all it all just snowballed. Well, that is ironic because technically this is a Spanish uh, filmmaker, even though this is a German production. But also uh, throughout the score and in many of his scores, does have that weird kind of uh, almost international spy meets calypso feel where you know it's almost like a 
I don't know, a, a very freewheeling, you know, organ uh, just going to town, uh, despite the fact that there are some pretty gruesome things happening uh, <laughs> or sometimes sexy things happening on the screen. So Indeed. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit from now. But um, I don't think there's anything on the docket other than getting right into the meat of this episode. And of course, we are talking about a movie called Vampiros Lesbos. This is directed by Jess Franco, my Uncle Jess. Uh, everybody's <laughs> Uncle Jess, really. Uh, <laughs> Uncle Jess. I know, right? <laughs> uh, also, of course, known as Jesus Franco. But, uh, you know... Honestly, I don't think he should degrade himself like that. And <laughs> right, don't be putting on airs, Jess Franco. Yeah. You know, hey, hey, Zeus Franco, putting above your station. Hey, Zeus, don't, don't make it. <laughs> oh, you know, another song I considered was, okay. um, you know, doing uh, Jolene by Do Dolly Parton, but it would be Nadine. So Nadine, oh. Nadine, Countess, Nadine. That's know. actually not bad. It's actually not bad, but I, I love that song so much. I'm like, eh, you know, another day, another, another movie. Who yeah, knows? I guess you another know? time we do an episode in a movie who has a protagonist that rhymes with Jolene. It's actually pretty common. You know, when that happens... You'll be ready, I guess. I will. I will be Johnny on the spot. Oh, boy. Uh, so, we are talking so, about yes. Vampiros Lesbos. Um, I want to start off, first of all, by plugging uh, one of the greatest things ever, which is a two-volume tome uh, written by Stephen Thrower. He is the author behind quite a few good, heavy, heavy books. Not necessarily dense, just heavy, heavy tomes that just uh, exhaustingly explore uh, a lot of the, well, a lot of the areas that we're going to, we talk about on this podcast. Uh, his, mm -hmm. I think his claim to fame was when he wrote Nightmare USA, which is like a catch-all for uh, a bunch of different exploitation movies, and he kind of goes through, and, you know, I, I, not everyone's going to dig it, I don't think, um, because it is a very capsule based uh book where it just kind of he goes from movie to movie and he really just vomits out his own thoughts but <laughs> his thoughts in and of themselves are informed by an extremely uh well informed perspective and uh he's a very articulate person and i love his writing so it didn't bother me that it was less of a uh structural recounting of you know the era and more of a here are the movies that anyone should watch, good or bad, and this is, you know, their prominence in the context of every other movie in this book. So mm -hmm. I was a big fan of that. But then I discovered, of course, that he wrote <laughs> this two-volume tome of uh, Murderous Passions, which is the delirious cinema of Jesus Franco. And it's I think a great it's, title. I know, right? I mean, the full title's fantastic. I think it's safe to say that... Um, Jess Franco is his, I don't know, whatever you call it. Uh, White whale? No, I'm yes. Kidding, I don't know. No, I mean, pretty much like his one he's, filmmaker. He's his Rushmore, Nick. Oh, very good. Thank you. I, You know what? I'm going to put it like that. Yes. Jess Franco is his Rushmore. I'm, uh, I love that. I feel pretty good about it. <laughs> and, um, and I think that's very accurate because while he's written other books and he's got one, I have two of on, all on uh, Lucio Fulci. Uh, Stephen Sower literally shows up for good reason on every Severin disc of, of Jess Franco film doing a 20-minute interview somehow 
for every film. Like, I'm like, in my opinion, a, a normal sane person should only have about five minutes top of, of material uh, for any of these movies, let alone for every single one, you know, 20 to 30 minutes, whatnot. So God bless him. And of course, this book is certainly an extension of that ridiculous passion i know he met him and i know he interviewed him and uh literally went around to the location i mean you know just that kind of deep dive into the subject and it's very apparent in this book and so first i'm going to plug the book but then the reason i'm plugging it besides just that it's a great resource is i'm going to read from it because i think one of the funniest things to do when talking about a Jess Franco movie is to read the plot synopsis out loud <laughs> because it's yes. not even that crazy, so to speak, but certainly it's always weird because it's like trying to recount a dream where it's never as interesting as it sounds, but technically <laughs> watching it or, you know, experiencing it uh, is super fascinating. Um, so bear with me here because it's, it's kind of a lengthy paragraph and whatnot, mm -hmm. but I'm going to read and this will get us into the mindset of Vampiros Lesbos. God damn, this book is heavy. I know, and it's only one volume. I know, right? This is literally <laughs> up until 1974. Yeah, <sighs> I mean, it's like Robert Caro's, like, well, probably six-volume biography of LBJ. I'm like, man, each one of these is like a thick-ass <laughs> 600-page book. I mean, it's great. No, but yeah, anyway, but synopsis. Mm -hmm. Okay. After a night out with her boyfriend Omar... Watching a nightclub burlesque show involving a beautiful, predatory woman ravishing a human dummy, Linda becomes preoccupied with what she has seen and consults Dr. Steiner, a psychiatrist. She tells him that she had dreamed about the woman before seeing her in the flesh. Soon afterward, Linda's employer asks her to help in establishing a real estate office in Istanbul. <laughs> she agrees, saying that she's already going to Turkey to see the Countess Nadine uh, you know, Dan, help me out here. Mm -hmm. How would you pronounce this in English? Is it Karoti or Karate um, for Nadine? I, honestly, probably uh, Karate, I would karate. say. That's, that's what I was yeah. thinking. Uh, how's it spelled again? Uh, C-A-R-O-D-Y. So I think of it like like Cody, but then when I read it, the full word, I'm like, I think it's Karate. It might be, yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, kind of is interesting because of the carotid artery. Of course, you know, God damn it, Dan. often on least I'm just thinking this. You're already time. getting it's true. started. I love it. I know, but it's the, by the jugular vein there where it's it's what the vampires always go for for some reason. That so. is true. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, she agrees, saying that she's already going to Turkey to see the Countess Nadine Karate, whom she has never met regarding inheritance. In a small Turkish town en route to the Kadidados Islands, where the Countess lives, Linda encounters Mehmet, a sinister hotel employee who warns her not to go to the island. Despite walking in on him, torturing a woman in the hotel cellar, <laughs> Linda ignores his warnings <laughs> and <laughs> continues on her journey. Arriving at the Countess's beach house, she finds it empty. The Countess is outside, sunbathing by her swimming pool. She greets Linda, who is startled by her appearance. She is the woman from the nightclub show. After swimming and sunbathing together, Nadine and Linda discuss the terms of the inheritance, which involves the transfer of property from a certain Count Dracula. Mm. Linda falls unconscious after drinking red wine, and the Countess sucks her blood. Arriving sometime later, feeling groggy and confused, Linda staggers outside, but she faints again when she sees the Countess in the swimming pool, apparently dead. At a private clinic in Istanbul, run by Dr. Seward, a psychiatrist fascinated by the occult, a woman called Agra raves that her friend, the Queen of the Night, is returning. 
Linda is brought to Seward's clinic having lost her memory. Her boyfriend Omar finds her there, but she cannot remember anything that took place on the island. Soon Omar, too, is bitten by the vampire. Meanwhile, Countess Karodi has become obsessed with Linda, seeking her out again to pass on the secrets of the vampires, as Count Dracula did to her many years ago. Okay, so I know that was a little well, that's long a, in the tooth. No, that's a surprisingly accurate summary uh, it is. of the, at least the first half. And that's yeah. kind of why I love uh, reading any of these, because honestly, sometimes, at least the first time I watch any of these movies, like, this is all extremely straightforward. Like, all of that did happen, and it actually, it, whatever. But I, I'll be damned if I actually catch... You know, more than seventy-five <laughs> percent of seventy. You know, uh, on a, right. up upon a first viewing, just because, particularly from the seventies on, Jess Franco was just abstract as they come, mm-hmm. uh, at least in his pacing and whatnot. So, okay, so that's to get our mind going. I guess I'll speak a little bit about just the man himself, and then we will yeah. get into. I, I would like you to yeah, yeah. get into the uh, the movie itself. So, I, I chose this movie to do because I'm a huge fan of Mr. Jesus Franco, and I've been watching his movies now for you know three or four years, maybe maybe five. I mean, pretty much right at the very beginning of my foray into this whole world of exploitation and i was struck by two directors in particular on the euro cult stage which was jess franco and uh john rolin uh who's a french director Mm. and he's fantastic too uh very different from jess in that his movies are slightly more uh intelligent Mm. so -hmm. to speak i mean his abstraction truly is uh, beguiling in a way where they're, they're almost uh, prosaic in nature and um, anyway they're fantastic but these are two different guys like in my opinion one guy's strength is because he plays at his own level in the sense that Jess is not the smartest man in the room however he knows that if, if that is the case that there's still technically no substitute for just giving into your impulses when it comes to filmmaking you know and and just going on that kind of level of feeling and and the synthesis between that and his uh filmmaking approach and then you have someone like uh john relland who's a much more analytical and thinking about you know what he puts in front of the screen how he composes it and whatnot so i certainly i kind of it was almost like a race like i started watching movies by both of them at the same time and mm-hmm. it ended up that jess franco got ahead of john rowan even though i love john rowan for sure and we'll probably do one of his movies on this podcast at some mm-hmm. point mm-hmm. yeah i'd love to but jess franco is the one that just drew me into the point where i was like just defeated i was like you know, okay, you win, Jess. Like, even when... I cry uncle <laughs> at last, I surrender. I cry yeah. uncle Jess, more like... Ah, nice. Um, but I'm like, you know, even at your worst, which he's made a lot of bad movies. Uh, some would say he's made only bad movies. I would say that they're wrong. <laughs> but he's certainly made bad movies. But, like, even at his worst, um, th- this guy, for my money at least, is just such a visionary. And while most sane people don't share his vision, <laughs> um, I am one of them who does. And I am just always, at the very least, uh, beguiled and in, uh, entrenched in 
in any of his movies. Uh, from the bottom of the barrel to the cream of the crop, which I think the movie that we are talking about uh, today is certainly the latter company. He is just a filmmaker who, uh, you know... I, and I've said this to you, Dan, and I'll kind of illustrate it, you know, on the podcast, yeah. that he truly is a stream of consciousness filmmaker. It's not that he improvises anything, but like he writes a script and then by the time he's shooting it, that script is only half important. <laughs> you know, it's like he did that first because that's what you do. But then when he's shooting, uh, say he has a dream, you know, the night before they're doing this exterior shot on the beach and he has a dream about maybe something that happened on the beach. Okay, that's now more important than anything he wrote prior, you know, and he incorporates that into the right. next day's shoot. And, you know, um, this and because he was such a weird workmanlike figure in the industry, I mean, he would shoot three to four films at the same time. I mean, at, at a right. max, but like production wise, he would have his crew literally go okay we're shooting scenes for this one here and then we're shooting scenes uh, later in the afternoon for this one with the same pretty much cast because you know it's harder to try to spend yourself too much but sure. you know and so at a certain point i feel like this plate spinning really starts to seep into his movies because he is truly at that time like a man who was just on edge and trying to keep all this together and failing at a lot of times as far as trying to strive for any sort of a coherentness however call it accidental call it unintentional but because the mode he was often operating in from about 1969 on was surrealism I, it only works in my opinion to most of his films uh, benefit there are certainly some of them that are just incompetent and incoherent <laughs> and you know that's you know i mean he made upwards of 200 movies so Amazing. the fact that he can make 20 good movies or so which i think he made more but even that out of 200 even though that's only 10 percent, that's still a ridiculous hit ratio for a guy who at one time made 12 movies in one year so wow yeah 12 wow yeah i forget which year i was, that was. I was gonna ask you what you know like when he was at his most prolific i mean what, it was definitely what, in the 70s know. i don't remember which year it was but from the 70s was easily his most prolific era it was right before the 80s in which he was actually making some of his best stuff in the 80s but he was starting to really lose funding you know like or i should say the wells were starting to dry up because even in the 70s when he was at his peak it was like trying you know trying to shake hands with whoever would put their hand out so i mean vampiros sure. lesbos was a german co-production because he was uh in a partnership at the time with um the german producer whose name escapes me but i think it's like arthur uh something but that's the thing is that he from you know day to day he he wanted to make movies so badly that he would do anything to do it, and then he would essentially, I would think at least, but be so uncompromising in his vision that because he this might be his last, which is ironic because he made 200 of them, but I, I truly do think that that's how he approached each one. I mean, he used uh, locations over and over again. I mean, there are certain uh, vistas and, uh, you know, castles or even like uh, housing establishments that he returns to. And it's so weird because on the one hand, you would think that that might be a sign of like laziness or something. But on the other hand, most of the locations that he found are so gorgeous and so weirdly surreal and beautiful 
that it almost becomes part of that Jess Franco myth, you know, it's like, what if this, you know, the Jess Franco cinematic universe or whatever, but <laughs> like, what if these are all just the same dream, but repurposed, Ooh. you know, and, and almost like a Mulholland Drive-esque fashion. And I, right, right. And I personally, I, I really dig that because I, you know, sometimes I uh, is kind of going off on a tangent, but I know you'll appreciate this, Dan, but mm -hmm. um, there's one thing that sometimes musicians do that I think is underrated because most of them are afraid to do it, uh, which is when they're writing lyrics, um, there's a musician I love. He's a folk artist named Josh Ritter. Mm. And one thing I loved is in one of my favorite albums of all time that he did was uh, an album called The Animal Years. And what I loved in that, in that, he clearly came across uh, when he was writing those lyrics for that album, a simile that he was really fond of, you know, totally. and in this case, it was the, the, the phrase Laurel begs Hardy, you know, mm. and what's ironic is then in at least three of the songs on that album, he uses that phrase. And huh. I think some people might be quick to dismiss that kind of writing of like, you know, well, that's just lazy. You know, like he, he was too enamored with coming up with this. So therefore, you know, he couldn't think of anything better. But in my opinion, A, I think it gives that whole album a more weirdly cohesive feel. Uh, but B, it's like, I don't know. I kind of like the way that that almost illustrates a weird stream of consciousness and a really personal relationship because you really start to see the seams of like songwriting totally. and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's kind of Jess Franco too, where he does repeat himself ad nauseum and he does reuse the same cast, the same locations, a lot of the same themes, motifs and whatnot. But he almost seems to do it because it is, uh, like I said earlier, a stream of consciousness, and it, it is just this, um, you know, like he has to, so to speak. And I, and I admire that, because yeah. you, no one has to watch his movies, myself included. Um, so at the very end, you know, the fact that he was making movies for himself is ultimately why I think they're the, as successful most of the time as they are, because he... As, you know, didn't care about any of those kind of criticism or whatever. And so therefore we have this weird wild corner that is Jess Franco movie. So <laughs> um, that's kind of my weird rambling spiel of what I like about him. But sure. No, I mean, I will agree, though. I mean, I think in some ways, songwriters like Josh Ritter, um, they do tend to get uh, for some reason in music, people, I think, tend to get more of a pass than people who are filmmakers yeah. uh, so like uh you know songwriters or, or even like painters or or artists where they do a series where they do like you know 12 or 15 variations on a th on something you know or like i mean one of my favorite songwriters i mean you know definitely a, a seminal influence for me was van morrison oh, yeah. and i mean you know for starting in, I mean, really in the 70s through even now the obsessions are the same. I mean, the phrases are often the same. And, yeah. you know, um, you know, he'll have certain things he says, like, you know, we'll see me through, you know, so quiet here. Uh, you know, stuff about Kerouac or this book he read about Jelly Roll Morton. And I love that. I love that it's all part of this one single tapestry to him, you know, and that I don't know if it's more like, I mean, in the case of Jess Franco or whoever, maybe it's the idea is that, well, I'm going to, I've, I'm going to get it a little better this time. I didn't quite get it right, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it again. And I feel like this time I'm going to get closer. And I really admire that kind of, 
obsessiveness um, in in any form of art, really. I mean, or even like, uh, you know, like Tarantino, like, uh, though there's stuff in his scripts where you're like, oh, okay, yeah, we were this like, you know, uh, okay, Ramblers, let's get rambling. Or yeah. he'll have a thing where he's like, well, you know, it's uh, there's something, you know, uh, something rotten in Denmark. I mean, that shows up in like three of his screenplays. And, yeah. and I, some people will go, oh, well, that's just lazy. And I'm like, no, it's, it's, it's about obsession. It's about yeah. loving a certain phrase so much that I keep, you keep wanting to put it into things, you know, which I love. It's preoccupations. Exactly. Yeah. No, and I and I absolutely love that. And that's also, I think, what informs people like myself. I, I think it takes a filmmaker that obsessive mm-hmm. to uh, essentially create a fan base that obsessive. You know, I yeah. think if, if you're on his wavelength and then you're starting to think like he does and therefore, well, I'm not at all ever, even in this episode, ever going to try to claim that he's some kind of genius or misunderstood or anything like that. I'm not saying he's not, but I'm not going to make that claim, so to speak. Sure. Uh, however, uh, he's certainly obsessive, and I feel like sometimes that in and of itself can be um, something that's endearing if, if if you're obviously embracing it from the right uh, you know perspective. And for me, I, I absolutely am. So mm-hmm. let's get into Vampirus Lesbos. And I guess I'm curious, Dan, since I just talked about Jess Franco, do you want to go first about Vampiros Lesbos or do you want me to keep going? You know, um, I mean, I guess you've already... I'm totally fine either way. Well, you've, you've already kind of told the story of what it's basically about. So I think I'd like to go first because I, I would yes. like to kind of get my thoughts out before... Please. Cause, and then I think you'll kind of um, amplify and and maybe kind of sculpt some of the things I'm, I'm thinking after I say I it. was honestly hoping you would go first because I'm tired of talking, so... <laughs> well, I mean, one thing about it is, I, I, you know, one gets the feeling that this happens sometimes to me. You're getting, you know, you're watching something of like an, what I would call an ur text, you know, you are ur. So it's like something foundational in which you can see where so many other movies came out of it, you know, and, and that was how I felt watching this. It felt, it was, it's like, um, I don't know if our listeners can appreciate this, but um, if you've seen a lot of films, but there's certain films you haven't seen that are supposed to be like classics you haven't seen. So like uh, some particular seminal film from an iconography speaking point of view. Um, so you're watching it and then all of a sudden you go, oh, so th- so that's where all those tropes and imagery and and ideas came from. That's why the structure of these these this genre is so similar. It's because it all came out of this. So it's like it's almost like watching like um watching a lot of movies and then all of a sudden one day you watch the Maltese Falcon or like Z like Casablanca. Casablanca, yeah, or uh, like I've heard this entire script before, even though I've never seen this movie before. Right, exactly, or or like you know, like Rio Bravo, you know, or even honestly, even The Matrix. I mean, for for another for a generation after this, that's going to be one of those Rio Bravo, Maltese Falcon. Uh, Casablanca movies where they're going to be like, oh, this is why all these movies did this right after 1999. <laughs> so I liked that about it. And, and I, the other thing I would say is that the, the scenes that I thought, even the ones that I thought were silly or puzzling and, you know, like some of the, for instance, some of the torture seller stuff I felt was kind of odd, but even then I found it extremely engrossing. And I think that's a really big compliment to say that about something where you're, you're sitting there, you know, cerebrally going, 
I'm not buying this for a second. And yeah. yet at the same time, you're like, man, I need to keep watching this, not just out of duty, but because I'm genuinely engrossed by it, you know? Well, not to mention too, metatextually speaking, because that sure. is Jess Franco as that <laughs> character, mm-hmm. that's almost, it, maybe it's a cheat, but I just, when those scenes come on, because it already is a weird tonal shift uh, and probably oh, a, yeah. a, not a great one, but uh <laughs> Because it's him, you're like, okay, I'm listening. You know, like, you, you know, there's the, and now that was something he did often. He was certainly kind of Hitchcock in that nature, uh, although way more forefront than Hitchcock. Hitchcock sure. liked to be in the background. He liked to be in the, never a protagonist for sure, but he definitely loved to come on screen and be the worst person in any of his movies. <laughs> even, even when his movies weren't at that tone that his characters are at. I actually kind of admire that. Um, that's one of my favorite filmmakers is John Sayles, and he often casts himself as a, as a, a really crappy character, a really Weasley or villainous character, but not like the main villain. He's not like he's not putting himself on a pedestal like ho oh, oh, ho, I'm the big heavy, no, no. but just enough that I, I, you know, he does it enough times that I think it's kind of interesting and 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 kind of um, endearing in a way. Um, I, I'll tell you what, though, speaking of puzzlement, yeah. when I when I first like, okay, so when we first got to where the setting changes at the beginning of Act Two, right? Where, I mean, it's, it's, the film is very, very nicely, um, formally divided into three acts. I mean, I mean, most films are, but I mean, this is a very clear one. I thought, I thought that was kind of cool. For being a kind of rambling movie. I, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least in the editing, they found a way to really create, um, discrete sections in a sense. Um, so uh, I thought at the, at the beginning of Act Two, where you're in the clinic, I honestly thought for a second that they were like they were switching between realities. Like Linda was unstuck in time and, you know, oscillating wildly between the clinic reality and the countess's reality. Cause I didn't catch right away that there were two different patients at the clinic. Yes. And uh, I think his casting does that a lot in a lot of his movies. Um, almost right. deliberately. So yeah. Right. Well, on the, I mean, the actors are fully committed, which I love. Uh, so I thought at first it might be another, um, uh, or possibly, uh, an important early contribution to what I call the guy goes not so sub sub genre, which I've talked about before. I think I talked about it on, uh, uh, bad girls go to hell. Well, as it turns out, it was actually sort of peripheral to that. I mean, like for instance, I just saw uh, a guy goes not so film called um, Double Lover by a Francois Ozon, and it was pretty good. Although Double Lover is, is a pretty unsubtle title. I'll talk more about doubles later, so never mind that. But it strikes me as having Vampires Lesbos strikes me as having some parallels to what I would call those those early guy goes not so movies where you're not sure what the reality is and specifically repulsion and persona Ooh. and especially especially persona I I yeah felt it a lot in that movie so yeah. I, I, you know which is great because I love persona and I mean and in fact uh, listeners uh, who are curious about that uh, they should check out an episode of film tank about persona which is I think one of the best episodes of film tank ever I absolutely Ooh. love it and it's incredibly um, in depth and it's uh, it's just fantastic you know so uh, I, I will agree. say that so if you're curious about that boom so <laughs> So, uh, okay, so the other thing, though, is that the eroticism 
is weirdly intoxicating, like bafflingly so. There's times where you feel kind of uneasy about some, like finding the stuff sexy, which is sort of like in Persona, where you're yeah. like, do I feel? Because I mean, Persona, I would say, I think it was one of the most erotic films ever, even though there's no explicit, you know, at least only in dialogue. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I remember which, the first I mean, time, really quick. Yeah, I watched Persona Go ahead. and still having because I was new to the Criterion Collection and really starting to broaden those horizons. And first of all, Persona is one of my all-time favorite movies. Just Word. throwing that out there. But I remember the first time I watched it, and I was like, still kind of. Uh, stuffed up a little bit with preconceived notions about movies of a certain era, movies of even sure. a certain color grade, you know, just like all these things that you got to break through. And so that scene uh, with the beach monologue, right. when that started like happening, I just remember like that was one of the biggest like seminal moments of my film going experience when I was younger of going, oh, oh my yeah. God, not only can films do this, but They've been doing it for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they've been doing it, if you will. Doing it in the... No. Anyway, um, no, you're right. I mean, and that scene to me is actually one of the most uncomfortably erotic scenes ever put on film, uh, <laughs> even though, like you said, it's entirely just a monologue. Yep. Uh, but I mean, the subject matter, and I'm not going to go into it because it'll take forever, but <laughs> that'd be a whole nother episode just on on that scene in Persona. But I definitely felt that kind of uneasiness when I was watching Vampiris Lesbos. And, and even like, there's kind of this Herzogian, which, I mean, again, I realize he's actually a bit prior to Herzog, so... You know, but I mean, I kind of felt that sort of nature as phallus stuff with the reoccurrence of that villa's, um, the villa's moth thing, yeah, or I don't know what it was, and, and yeah. the scorpion stuff. Oh, yeah. And I will say, yeah, right. And I mean, I know that's something we're going to want to talk about. But, you know, it's funny. I, I remember even thinking how clever it was because each time they showed the moth and the scorpion and such, like, the editing got sped up considerably. So not the not the film, but just the the edits, the cuts. So like each time it would kind of shuffle through them faster, which is sort of like the editor was saying, uh, "Okay, you've seen this all before. Now let's give it to you at half the duration," which I thought was really nice. Yeah, I really liked that. Yep. But also the imagery of that scorpion at the bottom of the pool um, is weirdly, strangely disturbing. I mean, I'm not somebody who erotic. What's that? <laughs> I was making a joke. Erotic. And erotic. No, uh, but I mean, it, it makes perfect sense in the film, but it's odd for me to feel any kind of identification with the scorpion. I, I think of them as kind of, you know, they're one of those uh, arthropods where I'm like, yeah, they're horrifying to look at, you mm -hmm. know. And, but even then, it's like, well, what do you do? I mean, if you're a scorpion and you fall into a pool, what the hell do you do? There's no, you can't get out, yeah. you know. And so, so there is that kind of feeling like, kind of that same feeling like at the beginning of the wild bunch where you see the kids and they're like torturing the scorpion and you're like, well, I'm not really into scorpions and they're not exactly cuddly, but still this is kind of messed up that they're doing this, you know? That's what's so weird. Uh, if I can interject really quick. Sure. So weird about, in my opinion, the scorpion cutaway. I mean, there's kind of, from what I remember, uh, there's, there's four major motifs in those editing, which is the scorpion, uh, the I think it's technically a butterfly from what I read at least I would never okay have, I wasn't sure yeah no I, I would not have picked up on that without clarification uh, from <laughs> Stephen Thrower thank you uh, so the scorpion the butterfly the blood dripping on the window 
and the kite. Yes. Like those are like literally packaged together almost as a uh a uh little mini sequence in and of itself that then gets repeated at crucial points of I think differing consciousness uh, throughout the film, Definitely. whether it's when the character's falling asleep or when the character's dying, you know, so on and so forth. Anyway, we'll get into that. But sure. specifically, what I find so weird about the Scorpion uh, shot, so to speak, is that it almost defies the normal knee-jerk reaction of, like, trying to ascribe meaning to it, because right. obviously you hear Scorpion or you just see one, so therefore your first is, you know, knee-jerk reaction would be like, okay, well, so that's Nadine, I guess. You know, like, just that kind of very basic, blunt uh, blunt force symbolism, sure. so to speak. <laughs> but then, as you point out, that scorpion in and of itself is technically in a weird context that also removes a lot of the threatening uh, parts of what a scorpion can and cannot do. Totally. So then, <laughs> from that little, you know, differing from normal symbolism it becomes this now a weird question of who is the scorpion and while right. i don't think it's satisfying to come up with a concrete answer uh obviously it's super interesting to think about and it's kind of what i like about this kind of abstract uh movie making which is to say it takes familiar iconography but then also changes it up just enough to where you can't actually rest on simple analyzation just by virtue of a that's so boring but also right. b <laughs> that you know, there, there, there's a new context here that begs to be dived into. Yeah, I agree, um, and, and that's that's part of um, what's interesting is that yeah, like you said, the scorpion outside of that that um, environment feels uh, vulnerable, which of course it is at the end. But I mean, there's a, you know, use the word um, earlier, use the word beguiling, and it's funny because I used, I thought I said the same thing in my notes uh, when I was watching it. Um, for instance, there's other imagery that's uh, less um, cut in. You know what I mean? It's it's more narrative. Like for instance, there's that beguiling, as I said, image of uh, the Countess Nadine on the apartment balcony, like drawing back with her hand like an invisible curtain, uh, which yeah. is so intriguing. And I wondered if it was. And I mean, again, this is one thing maybe we can talk about more later, but. I wondered if it was possibly a reference to the sort of uh, what you might call the well-known uh, laws of vampirics, vampirics, which is to say that like a vampire can't enter your home until you invite her. You know, like uh, you look at yeah. let the right one in or let it let her in. I mean, those are let me in. Those are examples, obviously. But yeah. I, or, or or on the other hand, maybe the gigantic medallion she was wearing was what allowed her to enter because we do know she does enter and um, she sucks some of the blood of Omar. And I often wondered, well, is it is the drawing back of this invisible curtain? Is that some sort of spell or or way to um, uh, give yourself uh, like a a mulligan, if you will, for something yeah. that normally you couldn't get away with? Uh, well, I definitely think, technically speaking, that you're you're onto something because one thing that I kind of laugh at, and particularly I was reminded when I read the synopsis uh, provided by Thrower himself, was that. <laughs> the for you know because one of the silliest but also <laughs> rigid rules of vampirism in most pop culture is that whole invitation only right. uh, mo operating mode um that technically the entire impetus for uh, uh 
Linda uh, to come to the Countess is this transfer of property. And so the idea that, you know, uh, a vampire has to essentially be in the fulcrum of this kind of real estate deal is just hilarious, even if I think it's unintentional. But to lay that on top of what's a well-known trope of vampirism, of not, you know, not being able to go into certain properties. So it's like literally losing uh, a power, so to speak. Right. No, that's an interesting, uh, that's a, that's actually a pretty good interpretation. Cause I, I was curious about that. Cause there are certain, uh, laws of vampirics, I would say that they follow and others they don't, but, um, I mean, okay. So the thing is, is <clears throat> okay. So in the first 10 minutes of this movie, I had a very clear idea of why, well, one of the reasons why this film has remained so popular because holy cow, they get right to it and wow, holy God. And I mean, I'm not complaining, but yeah. it's, 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 it doesn't sound like you are. Oh, I'm not. I'm not. And, and it's, uh, I mean, I, I knew it was going to be a bit, you know, I don't want to say softer core, but risque, uh, risque, but I didn't expect them to go quite as far so quickly. And I actually kind of appreciated the fact that they're like, okay, this is the movie, you know, let's just admit this is what the movie's about. And, you know, but I mean like, like, okay. So, so people in the listeners who haven't heard, I mean, it's like, okay, the opening scene, you've got a nightclub act that is the countess making out with herself in a mirror. And then you've got this. I mean, I would, if I was I, solid at Miranda, I know. Right. I mean, it's like when you're making out, with, I mean, when you're, it's still, you're making out with Soledad Miranda. Exactly. So, I mean, no mm-hmm. matter what, you know, but so the, there's this completely naked redhead with, I mean, let's face it, perfect breasts, I would say. Right. Standing mannequin still in the corner, waiting for the countess to put it mildly, luxuriously ogle her <laughs> while, <laughs> you know, while Linda is losing her mind watching this and let's face it, slowly getting wet in a booth in the back of the room. I mean, so you got a blonde, a brunette, a redhead, something for everyone. Hey, you know what I mean? I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just saying. Oh, man. And then, but I mean, just, and there's just, there's a weird blatant disregard for continuity in this scene, which makes more sense later as you see a similar scene played out, but it, it makes it feel even more surreal and more like kind of like, you know, sh- shot through with lascivious abandonment, you know, or something. Like the only thing that matters is the erotica. Exactly. And to be honest with you, I'm sure a lot of people have not even noticed that when they're watching it because they're too busy going, mm-hmm. wow, this this is some strong stuff. And in fact, yep. you know, it's funny. Um, uh, there's a film. I wonder if, okay, there's a director named Jean-Claude Brousseau who did a film called Secret Things and well, as well as several other great films, but I th- wonder. I, I'm I'm almost positive he must have seen this because his the opening for his film Secret Things is very similar in mood and like general uh, plot establishment, where you've got like a woman who's doing a very erotic dance, and then there's another woman at the bar who's enraptured, and then basically within 15 minutes of the running time, they're lovers and. I, I don't know. It's it's intriguing. I, I I think there's just to start with that in the same way that Vampiros Lesbos. I think there must be some connection there. And in fact, I you know I will say just on the general note that Jess Franco falls in that weird camp of a small section of filmmakers who is beloved by his peers but not by the critics you know yes. whereas like uh and not saying all his peers obviously but <laughs> he was his i've told you his most famous 
touch of greatness was uh, when, at least as far as six degrees of what people consider to be mainstream mm. uh, cinephile world, whatever, bleh, uh, is when he was a second unit director for Orson Welles on Chimes uh, at Midnight. Right. And, you know, obviously Orson Welles was a fan, but I know a few other French directors who were part of the French New Wave loved him. And that was a common occurrence in that, like, the filmmakers you know, who were super obviously beloved by critics and whatnot and praised by them were like, Oh man, have you seen what this guy is doing? <laughs> like it's, you know, once again, totally. they weren't necessarily speaking, I would say hyperbolically or anything like that, but they were certainly keyed into like how weird and strange this mode of filmmaking is, uh, to the point, you know, where it is, uh, it's, it's such a weird, uh, dichotomy to be loved by, you know, those peers who are arguably in some ways more knowledgeable than any critic. And I don't mean that in a Birdman esque, <laughs> uh, screed of like, well, if you can't do it, then become a critic type shit, because I don't believe in that. And I actually do think separation of church and state yes. like there are things that a critic can intuitively know that a filmmaker cannot step out of you know what mm -hmm. i mean and, and and away from you know so i think it goes both ways but uh in this case uh, i do think critics uh should kind of heed the words of, <laughs> of some of the people they love so much <laughs> Well, I would agree. And I mean, not all filmmakers, but most of the great filmmakers tend to be pretty big film fans. I mean, I can mm -hmm. only think of a couple people who are like, you know, like Cronenberg. Uh, He's not somebody who's a huge fan of movies. He likes them, right. but he got into it. He was originally a novelist and he got into it because he decided that it was... Uh, something he could do, which in, in the end he could do well. But most of these guys, I mean, you're, you know, your Scorsese's, your, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's, your Quentin Tarantino's, they love, love movies and they cannot get enough. I mean, it's, there's this insatiable appetite. Indiscriminately so. Very because much. I remember when I read a random, uh, I think, article like two, maybe years ago or so. Uh, Tarantino is listing off his favorite movies of the year and you know as any self-respecting person should do you read through it and you say disagree agree disagree <laughs> you know whatever right. like right. in my opinion that's a healthy sign it's not so much because like, I love Tarantino but also if I ever 100% agreed with anybody whether even if it's a person I love then shoot me but no yeah uh, but at the very end of his thing he wrote that one of his favorite movies of that year was Daddy's Home with, um, really, you know, Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg and whatever. And now he put in the little blurb as to why he put it. It was like, oh, I can put this. Wait, was it Tarantino? I or was it Sofia Coppola? That's a weird detour. Oh, either way, it's it was intriguing. one of the two. But it was a prestigious filmmaker, and I just remember at the very end they wrote that. I, I'm starting to think it was Sofia Coppola. Mm. Anyway, but at the very end, they put that and they flat out admitted out of all the things my children want to watch, this is the one that I don't hate and I'm actually pleasant, pleasantly surprised by. And honestly, I think that's such a healthy attitude where it's like, you know, I read that and strangely, there were movies that they had listed earlier that were way more my speed, my whatever that I hadn't seen yet. It was Daddy's Home that I watched probably later that month out of curiosity because I'm right. like, well, I am in the mood for something dumb and whatever. And so if this is at least a palatable form of that. Anyway, yeah, that's, that's a long point. way of saying that 
I, I just love when a lot of filmmakers go out of their way to show the, uh, I don't know, film nerd side of them, where it's right. not just that they're in it to make it, but that they just can't stop consuming all of this and having opinions on this, no matter what the movie is. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and I feel like, uh, I mean, a good a good part of um, Tarantino's aesthetic, especially in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, has been... Um, especially in like something like Kill Bill or or actually Django Unchained even, um, there's this feeling like he's taking these genres that have been basically disrespected or these films that have been disrespected. And he's like, he's kind of bringing them back in because, you know, Quentin Tarantino is a highbrow filmmaker. I mean, he's loved by the critics. And so he's like, well, here you go. Here's this thing I learned from this movie that you would scoff at. And I'm bringing it back and I'm putting it into a new context and you guys love it. And I, I love that he does that. It's like, um, there's a line from um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, from, uh, I remember from school for some reason, but he said, um, I can't remember if I'm getting the, qu- the quote quite right, but he says, creativity is the return of one's thoughts with a dejected majesty. And with Tarantino, man, he really does that. I mean, he's like, oh, really? You think, you know, spaghetti westerns are crap? Or you think, you know, <laughs> I don't know, Across 110th Street is a lame movie? Well, I'm going to do this huge homage to it, and you're going to love it. And then you realize, yeah, you know, I need to expand my palette more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I will say a quick Google search did confirm that it was Sofia Coppola mm. who uh, randomly mentioned that in the interview. I will say, though, the reason why Tarantino came to mind is because he is a perpetrator of that, where every year he lists his favorite movies, like, there's always one movie on there that everybody is like, wait, what? Why did he even watch that? And <laughs> right. why is he, you know, praising it or whatever? So that's the only reason why that was impulsively first on my mind. Uh, but anyway, Sofia Coppola, Big sure. Daddy's Home fan. Mm, it's it really interesting. But I mean, I think uh, like even somebody like Jean-Claude Brousseau, who's a very, um, in many ways, uh, he's sort of a top tier French filmmaker. Um, I mean, he, he has a lot of eroticism in his films, but it's, 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 um, I don't want to say highbrow eroticism because that's insulting, but it, you know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, no, yeah. you know, it's the kind of stuff that might be in competition at con. And the idea that Brousseau clearly gets something from Jess Franco is kind of cool, you know? Uh, but that said, I mean, a lot of the eroticism, I think, does come from, I mean, a lot of it really works. Due to really good acting. And I think especially uh, Eva Stromberg. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Eva, Eva or Eva. I'm, Eva. Probably, I'm thinking think the W's like of Eva. Eva. But, but yeah. She, but she really does and I, uh, embody um, that mix of puzzlement and overwhelmed ravishment throughout the movie in, in various degrees. I mean, there's a part where she's talking to her uh psychiatrist or analyst or i don't i'm not sure which and she's like she feels scared but also aroused by the dream and she really brings that across throughout the movie just in expressions i mean there's a look on her face in the second seduction scene so in act two the one where she sort of sleepwalks her way to the you know that she has this this parted mouth and this furrowed brow and she's where she's on the bed and she's looming above the Countess Nadine and she first pushes aside the top of, you know, Countess Nadine's garment 
that look i mean it's that is the good stuff right there i mean i don't yeah. i mean you know and i'm not and i'm not discounting this, this importance of sexual chemistry or maybe none of this would have worked if the two leads didn't yeah. seem to be magnetized to each other i mean which is especially impressive considering they likely were not even speaking the same language when they performed Hell yeah their i was going to say that was like common thing in a lot of your cult films let oh, alone yeah. uh jess franco productions for sure and um one thing i like what you're saying is that there was a string of movies i think after this particular one where lesbian vampires were you know <laughs> the thing sure. so to speak yeah. whether yeah the velvet vampire or the vampire lovers you know all these things mm -hmm. but they almost had this weird and i don't mean this as a pejorative because i'm a fan but sure. like russ meyer approach <laughs> of like well you like boobs right like you know it yeah it, it, it lacked sexuality while more foregrounding the nudity, which I think is a unfortunate trade-off because I think what's what's interesting is that in a lot of those movies, there's no chemistry whatsoever. And exactly. there really doesn't have to be because they're operating on a completely different level, so to speak, as to what they're offering and whatnot. And yet that's why when I put one of these on, uh, you know, a Jess Franco production, I'm always struck by no matter what, <laughs> filmmaking be damned, mm -hmm. he does know how to capture eroticism. Yeah. No, I agree. And and I mean, uh, like you said about uh, – and this is true of, of so many uh, pornos, just – I mean, not just modern ones, but through the ages. You, they have to sell it. They There has to be mm -hmm. a feeling of – actual um ravishment and and that comes down to good acting frankly i mean it doesn't yeah. matter if you're a porn star or a legit star or whatever right right because they can be found performances wise can be found in pornos just as well as they can be found in non-pornos absolutely and i think what's ironic though is that you have to find the mode in which you work best and for me jess franco is best in softcore because i've actually seen a few of his hardcore efforts and they're not very good and mm. it's ironic because it's not doing that much different in those kinds of movies but i i feel like the uh abundance of certain obligatory shots get in the way of his more moody pacing which is not to say that he's not indulgent in a movie like <laughs> vampirous lesbos or anything like that sure. but he almost I think sometimes for someone like Jess, because I've also seen some hardcore features that are gorgeously shot and edited and paced, but a person like Jess, I think, benefits from that. Okay, I can't show this, so what can I show within this shot, uh, but also linger on, you know what I mean? Right. And and I, I think those restrictions uh, work best for his mind. Hmm. Well, and, and I mean, I don't know how you feel about this. Uh, I mean, I assume you're probably of a similar mindset as me, but I mean, I was joking earlier about the, uh, you know, blonde brunette redhead <laughs> thing. <laughs> but the two main characters do very much complement each other in both their looks and in their personalities. You know, I, I for some I, I kept thinking of this lyric by Jim Carroll, uh, where he says, uh, one night she's dark and French, one night she's blonde and Dutch. And I think as I was watching it, before I even understood that there might be a transformational aspect to their to their relationship. So even in the first act, before I understood anything about that I felt like there were times where 
these two very, very different looks and personalities were exchanging personalities again, like in, in persona. Yeah. And so I felt, I felt kind of gratified later on when I found out that that's all actually part of it, you know, like, yeah, you know, like uh, you've got Agra at one point, she's like, she was me and I was her, you know, and, mm-hmm. and then, yeah. I mean, they literally, you know, physically speaking, they, they drink from the same cup, you know, and right. I think that's a certain, uh, certainly one of the biggest tells in the movie as to uh, how this is all working, which not to say that there are any concrete rules, but there is certainly a visual schematic for what's playing out. Right, right. And I mean, it's it's kind of funny because, I mean, you've got something like Persona, which might be influencing uh, Vampiris Lesbos, and then which in turn influences Brousseau's movies like Secret Things or uh, L'Aventure, you know, where it's like, yeah. you, know, you know, it goes from being high to low, according to some, and then high again. It's it's intriguing, you know? It's true. Uh, well, so, okay, so about Agra. Really fast before yes. I, this is a bit yeah. of, a, of a non sequitur, but before, well, well actually, before I, uh, you know, first what? of all, just Franco would be proud. <laughs> oh, good. The non sequitur. I was going to say, that's pretty much his bread and butter. <laughs> that's true. I mean, that was his wheelhouse. Well, one of his wheelhouse. Yeah. But okay, but even actually, actually, a non sequitur to a non sequitur, um, before we get into Agra. <laughs> okay, now he's like, Got a huge erection. Oh, good, 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 good. Yes, that's that's not me. Jess. That is what I go for, my friend. That is what I aim for. If you're not getting a vibrate, no. Anyway, um, <laughs> so but before we even get into Agra, there's a there's that that line they say in passing, which I mean, you and I talked about briefly before we started, where it's it always belonged to the Dracula family, and I was like, hmm, nothing portentous about that name, <laughs> and it. But it, it, oddly enough, I don't know why, uh, but it wasn't until that point, uh, which is about 20 some minutes in, that I realized like the basic plot arc for at least for up until the end of Act One, it hews very closely to Bram Stoker's novel Dracula, where you've got like a, a lawyer travels to a vampire's castle to help finalize some kind of legal transaction. You know, in the case of, of uh, Jonathan Harker in, 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 in the novel, it has to do with real estate, I want to say. Yeah. And in this case, it has to do with um, uh, the estate of somebody who's passed. Yeah, you know? it's more of an inheritance, so to speak. Right. Yeah. So I just thought that was intriguing. And then, of course, I mean, and, but to go back to Agra, because this is why it was a non-sequitur, but uh, he, she is obviously very similar to the Renfield character. Uh, who's like the vampire devotee in an asylum? I, well, okay. First of all, I should say I, I just want to say this. I, 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 um, I think the clinic, the clinic, is appears to just be a lovely um, little bed and breakfast for people who've <laughs> recently had a psychotic break. I mean, it's like faulty towers yeah. with schizoid scent. I mean, it's just like wow, so nice, so nice. Hello. So I mean, clinic, you yeah. know. But anyway, uh, and then. Of course, the other thing too, this, this further confuses the whole idea of personality switches, but I actually thought for a while Agra was the same gal as the redhead in the opening scene. Like I thought Countess Nadine was just going around seducing women and like put, oh. putting her in a wig and then toss her off when she was spent, you know? Right. But then Which I, I, technically but I, right, she I, is, but it's not as, uh, it's not the one we see at the beginning it. though. I yes. mean, I, I realized later because the second time we see the stage show, it's obviously the same woman. And it's it, at that point, Agra is still at the clinic. So, but that said, Agra and the, uh, redhead, they have a similar like upturned 
nose and chin. I don't know. It's weird. There is certain similarities. Well, like you said, he had, Franco had certain things, it, obsessions and types. And psychologically speaking, what's fascinating about the stage show is that that is almost like I haven't read, and I'll put that out there, that I have not read uh, Stoker's Dracula. I've only sure. read two, but haven't gotten into it yet. But um, So I don't know. It's a, it's a good book. Surprise. I know yeah. you're shocked to learn that, but it's, I know, it's, right? it's good. That's weird. You know, I know. <laughs> weird that that book is, turns out to be good. So anyway, sorry, go on. No, but so I don't know if this is a thing or if it's not a thing. But what I love about Vampiros Lesbos is that uh, Nadine's uh proclivities are basically right there for any suspecting audience member you know her stage show is essentially mm-hmm. what she does and, and it's it's uh it's almost like performance art come you know actual murders and and psychotic breakdowns and, right. and on the one hand it is psychologically manifesting as what she's doing as far as like she thinks of these people as well literal dummies you know not human (laughs) beings but you know uh just whatever things for her and whatnot but also you know she's doing it for an audience which i think is also true when she's doing it in the privacy of her own home i mean first of all she has this weird groupie (laughs) uh i think is yeah (laughs) morpho and um you know obviously he's mostly just a second in command as far as like you know a guy to just get shit done when she doesn't want to do it whatever it is (laughs) but also he's just always there and i feel like even when he's not in the room he knows exactly what's happening and is weirdly thinking about what's happening like we're we're just one cut away from morpho masturbating furiously Mm, uh to mm -hmm. to any of this eroticism because for whatever reason and maybe this is just my male perspective but i feel like that's what is uh influencing his actions not so much whatever transfiction she has on him uh but actually just this kind of like well i mean maybe one day she'll turn it around on me even though she clearly doesn't like (laughs) men (laughs) You know, it's like, right, right. And, and I love how pathetic that character is. And that actually brings up a great point, which is that in a lot of Jess Franco movies, and this one, it is like maybe at his boldest, uh, men are the most uninteresting characters. Ah. And I absolutely love that. I'm not saying that there's nothing there, but very much. This is the antithesis of a lot of exploitation movies, particularly in, in America and whatnot of this era, which sure. is you tell them a story about men doing manly things or whatever, and <laughs> oh, this woman walks in and takes off her top, and that's all she's good for, you know, right. whatnot. And I'm not above a sleazy, shitty movie or anything like that, but also I love that Jess Franco cares in my opinion, at least, about his women as much as he does about them getting it on. Like, if I thought he was, like, I don't know, misogynistic, which I definitely think some of his movies, unfortunately, has leanings of that because they're of, A, another era, B, uh, an entire, you know, nationality. I mean, you know, just so many things sure. removed from my own personal experience. Uh, it's just bound to happen. And not to mention he's working in very murky territory in general with this kind of genre. But if I thought he was inherently uh, malicious in, uh, shall we say, some of his portrayals of women, then I probably would be turned off. Yeah. 
Agreed. But like any good Jess Franco movie, I am turned on, baby. Because <laughs> uh, I genuinely think what fascinates him most is women, not just sexually, but just women point blank. And, and I feel like that's what's always fascinating about his uh, works. No, I know what you mean. I mean, it's 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 a bit like a motivar or um, or even Robert Altman, where oh, yeah. the women tend to be often the main characters to the point where, you know, like I remember reading an interview with a motivar and he's like, <laughs> you know, for some reason that I have never bothered to analyze and never will, I just prefer to write women's characters. And, and they are, I mean, it's really true. I mean, those are extremely sympathetic portraits, or, or at least as sympathetic it's- as a man could Right, you know. It's funny you bring up uh, a motivator because now I'm just thinking that you could just retitle any Jess Franco film, Women on the Verge of an Orgasm. Like, it's just... (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Love it. I love Uh, it. And now, I frankly, I think they should. I agree. I think we should write uh, Severin, (laughs) the label that puts out all the Jess Franco, and be like, you know what we think you should do, and you should get on... That's right. I hope you see to it right away, my friends. Well, you know what? Change those titles. Yes. On that note, I'm going to compose an email. We're going to take a quick break. Yes. Uh, And then when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Vampiros Lesbos, and uh, then we'll get into the A-list, a always fun segment. So, Mm -hmm. here we go. I uh, made dirty calls uh, because I'm a creep. Welcome back, everybody, to Project Exploitation. In case you weren't listening to the first half, which would be pretty incredible feat, to be honest, uh, we are talking about Vampiros Lesbos, directed by Jess Franco. And, uh, you know, it's funny that this conversation has kind of gone the way it has, because normally on this uh, show, we try to keep to some kind of structure where one person gives an opening thoughts, another person kind of gives their opening thoughts, and then we open it up and kind of go through almost like uh, just kind of section by section, whatnot. And here we have not adhered to that at all, definitely unintentionally. And I think, honestly... That is indicative of a Jess Franco production, and I, I am, even though this was not our plan, I am so happy that that's how this has turned out because it really does become this kind of stream of consciousness of whatever the hell we can think of uh, in this moment to talk about because there is a lot to talk about, mm-hmm. but it's also so so messy and so uh, well fruitful that it's hard to just pick a lane and and stay in it. So, true. 
we are going to kind of bring this conversation to another avenue, which is we're going to talk about the character of Agra, who is the patient we are initially introduced to upon that kind of second act abrupt shift of who has been a victim of the Countess uh, prior to the scenes that take place in this movie. And uh, Dan, you had some thoughts about the character and their placement within this movie? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, for one thing... Um it seems to me, like I said before, it seems pretty clear that she's a stand-in for the Renfield character from Bram Stoker's novel, um, in the sense that she's kind of like, she's giving over her devotion completely to the Countess. Yeah. I mean, she says at one point, she was inside me, which, you know, you can take however you like. I was going to say, that's definitely uh, a double entendre. <laughs> nope. Nope. You're wrong. It's just a single entendre. Listen. Dan, nope. Just because I read into these things, get your mind out of the gutter, sir. No, anyway. uh, But uh, you know the funny thing, though, and part of the reason why I wanted to talk about her was it reminded me. Well, okay, so she's so hopelessly devoted to the Countess Nadine, uh, and she ends up so so forlorn after the Countess basically ignores her in favor of Linda and, and which is much like Renfield where he feels like, Hey, I've, I've been a, a devoted pupil of yours and, you know, and you haven't, you know, you didn't hook me up with immortal life, you know, and it, it reminded me a little of that flick that you showed me and Heidi um, last Halloween of this year. Uh, the black, oh, the black coat's daughter. Yes. Yeah. And cause it's like, you know, it, I mean, I, I imagine it must suck to be rejected by a demon, especially after the lengths that you've gone to win back its affection. And it's like, no, nah, I don't want anything to do with you. And so in a way, <laughs> oddly, it kind of reminded me of that where it was like, wow, even demons don't want to hang out with you. <sighs> that's a, oh, that's man. a pretty, uh, permanent kind of rejection feeling right there yeah it's you know? a very catty demon uh particularly True. in the context of these uh three young women uh well first of all i just want to say i'm very glad that you and heidi did not hate me after that because uh no i really liked that film it's one of those where like i'm a big fan of it you know for whatever reason but I also know that it's a weirdly tough sell in the sense that it's super slow paced and, and whatnot. Uh, but uh, it seemed like at least both of you were into it in, in the moment of. So, oh, yeah, I didn't waste your, your times at the very least. Oh, not at all. And I mean, some people say slow pacing. I say deliberate. I mean, because because I, I do feel like it really pays off in the end. I mean, yeah. It's a very good film. Uh, who's the director again? Tell me. So it's Oz Perkins, the son of Anthony Perkins. That's right. I would definitely recommend it. Um, yeah. uh, the Black Coat's Daughter, the title is odd. Uh, I wasn't able to find, I assumed it was from some sort of um, old uh, Middle English folk song or something. But honestly, yes, I, I can't believe find that's anything what the about case. it. I, yeah. just, I think it might have been a last minute title. Um you know, some some directors are like, man, I, I don't title to the like till the very end. So it's what I would call the A twenty four move, and I say that as someone who loves A twenty four. Don't get me wrong, sure. But kind of when you have this quote unquote serious uh, art horror film, uh, once again, I love A twenty four. But uh, I really hope the future of horror is not A24. And I say that as someone who wants them to keep doing what they're doing. Uh, but hopefully nobody else tries to emulate it because we don't need more of it. Sure. Uh, we also need things that are uh, just unabashedly horror. 
horror let's put it that way uh but but yeah kind of that slap on that kind of not even pretentious and a pejorative but yeah. like trying to reach to another artifact that supersedes the text itself but anyway uh but no i'm a big fan of oz perkins in general and the the black ghost daughter well i remember you said that was his first film and and i know you said his other films are more accomplished and so i definitely am looking forward to yeah. it but yeah I, I loved watching especially in halloween it was such a great choice and oh by the way i finally gotten through the halloween candy that i stole from <laughs> you so well i'm glad uh, to hear that. Yes. So I finally got through it like literally three days ago. I'm like, ah, you know, some insane. Well, that's a, that's a good sign. If you had said that like the day after or something, I'd be like, Dan, you, you, yeah. you, you okay? Yeah. You have a problem. Get help. So, yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I mean, honestly, there, I do see a lot of um, uh, personality schisms, even within characters like the main character, Linda, you know, like, okay. So like you compare, scene uh where she's very sensually loping across her balcony but then it cuts almost immediately and i mean it's a great scene and and she's very dreamy and and you know it's great um but then it cuts to her at her job wearing this like like hideous pink turtleneck with a like a sleeveless beige cardigan and some very large and unflattering glasses. And I say this as somebody who is seriously a confirmed glasses guy. I am way on board. Yeah. These don't work. But then almost immediately they cut again and Franco shows her in the next sequence, she's wearing a little black dress and she couldn't look more different than the office scene. And she's walking through, I guess, Anatolia or parts of Istanbul or whatever. So, I mean, you, you see a lot of this kind of doubling. I mean, you know, like obviously in the opening nightclub scene, you've got the performers wearing only like one black step stocking on their left leg each, which I know, again, I realized later on, you realize she's uh, later on in the film, you realize she's dressing this sort of mannequin character, if you will. Right. But I, I just think it's interesting. Um, and I, I think the doubling has to do with the fact that, well, okay, that there's a lot of characters in the movie who are being, um, to use the old world vampire term, being glamored or possessed uh, yes. or whatever you yep. want. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, there's that line from Countess Nadine where she's like, I bewitched them. They lost their identity. I became them. And then, of course, the Countess's first words to Linda are, come here. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, first words in person, I should say. So, basically, there's some kind of remote viewing slash come hither long distance hypnotism slash psychic projection homing beacon thing. So, and I, I wonder if a lot of this might be about, I think a lot of these exploitation films that talk about vampirism or lycanthropy. And again, I mean, I'm not breaking any new ground here, but I think a lot of it has to do with the fear of loss of control. You know, uh, vampirism is exemplifying um, homosexual panic, you know, the fear of being turned, you know, being, yes. turned, vamp being turned a vampire, being turned gay, and worst of all, enjoying it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, like that fear of losing yourself, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and I will say, though, but this movie is, I think, on a bashedly on the favor of seductiveness you know like where oh absolutely 
even though obviously I think that's the almost the entry point, especially back then during you know 1971, of being like, oh, vampiros lesbos, <laughs> like what a horrid thought or whatever. <laughs> but like to actually watch this movie, it's pretty great that I think, and certainly it's because he's pervy, and I'm not beating around that bush no, no, that's uh, fine. at all. But there is power to that because it's really in no way a gay panic film. Really, the ending is the only time when it verges on that because mm. for her to essentially reject it not completely because she says that's not a dream even though omar says it is a dream whatever um but because she rides off into the sunset literally uh with her boyfriend right it's it's not the greatest ending uh to to this uh in my opinion weirdly evocative uh story and premise however Besides that, and up until that, uh, Linda is completely not not just willing, but at the even more importantly, curious and uh, you know, in, well, seducted, so to speak. Sure. And I love the fact that this movie doesn't really treat the entire seduction of Linda by uh, the Countess as being a horrid thing. Obviously, there is horror elements to what the Countess may have in store for her beyond the seduction or what can really take place uh, after. But even that almost works on a metaphorical level. I mean, you know, we, we have, it's a common trope for good reason of sex being a, your entry point into a relationship and unfortunately not being the end point. And I say that right. what's ironic is that that almost sounds like, well, wait, why would it be? Because we should connect with each other beyond sex or anything like that. But I'm only talking in the sense that like how that often becomes uh, a means to discard another human being after that you know, moment of connection and right. the greatest and also vampire <laughs> example of that ever. And one of the greatest episodes of television is in Buffy, the vampire slayer when Buffy finally has sex with uh, her boyfriend, Angel, who is a vampire. Mm. And up until that point, he had made very vague comments about how, you know, I guess for anyone who's never seen Buffy, I will explain this very quick concept. Go on. <laughs> Buffy's first boyfriend, not her best boyfriend, that's right, I ship her and Spike. Email me if you are upset <laughs> or triggered. Send uh, your cards and but, letters to Nick Cheney on that one, because I have no right. opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but her first boyfriend is angel who is the uh vampire who gets his own spinoff and is a fantastic character in his own show not quite in my opinion on buffy but he is a you know 100 year olds uh vampire been around forever and he is uh he was cursed uh to get his soul back so now he's a vampire who has feelings which means he Mm. can't because he doesn't want to go around feasting on people and whatnot. Sure. And apparently he was foretold that the only way he would lose his soul again is if he ever experienced true happiness, which is why he goes around brooding all the time, even though he ah. has real emotions and whatnot. And honestly, it was a pretty good, I mean, now it seems tame and it seems kind of like a inevitable thing, but you know, at the time, it was kind of a twist. The idea was that it was because he had an orgasm that mm. what happens is he falls in love with Buffy. Buffy falls in love with him. They decide the time is right. They consummate their relationship. 
And all of a sudden, <laughs> and this was the greatest twist maybe in the entire show, at the end of the first parter known as uh, Surprise and Innocence, uh, he, after they have sex, the episode ends with him crawling out, basically, of the bed into a rain-soaked alleyway out of his apartment because something is happening, and he's lost his soul. Wow. And so in the entire rest of the season, which is season two, uh, he is the villain of the season because he... You know, he is now a vampire without a soul. And of course, that in and of itself was a metaphor for anybody who's ever consummated the relationship sure. with another person who was mm -hmm. then just turned into a total asshole, mm -hmm. you know, sure. afterwards. And it was, it's just one of the greatest things I've ever seen happen in television, even if Joss Whedon is a horrible person. And, uh, <laughs> um, but it's such a perfect distillation of that, that. I'll bring this around back to Vampiros Lesbos to say that Jess Franco does not treat the sex as something that is inherently a dangerous and or uh, problematic thing that leads to evil behavior. I feel like those two realms are separate. So what I kind of love is that Linda is changed by this experience by the end. Even if I don't love the ending, there is a thing, kind of a vague sense of loss where something will never be the same again mm -hmm. uh, because she has now known something that she didn't know prior to this experience. Uh, and probably will stay with Omar for the rest of her life, but mm -hmm. uh, will never be as happy again because of the fact that there is more out there than she realized. It's an interesting point. Well, first of all, I should say that uh, I, I feel that Joss Whedon is a bad person uh, specifically because he killed my two favorite characters from Firefly in the film Serenity. And for that, I will never forgive him. Uh, I realize he's done other bad things, but those <laughs> are paramount to my See, dislike. your first mistake, and I'm going to show my ass here, is <laughs> is caring about Firefly. Because I will admit, I'm a weird Whedon fanboy in the sense that I love Buffy, I love Angel. But you and, don't like Firefly. But I don't like Firefly, and I never know why. I mean, I own it. I've seen it. It's right. fine. Whatever. I've never understood it, though, as far as like the cultural phenomenon. I understand part of it is psychologically because it got canceled <laughs> and i think that's probably at least part of it if not most of it uh but even a show dollhouse uh which a lot of people don't like at all <laughs> i think is genuinely great uh and better than firefly but anyway uh that was your that was your mistake was caring about firefly <laughs> well i i will say in my defense um with firefly i only watched it years later after i knew it had been canceled because i bought the dvds um, so I, I did like it for that, but I knew it was not long for this earth. <laughs> so I will say that. That's fair. But then when they did the film, he went ahead and killed my two favorite characters in the most savagely yeah. uncaring way, which is the Joss Whedon thing. I was going to say, and he did it to great effect in Buffy and Angel, but I feel like in Serenity, it became this weird, like, well, we came back, so we need to do it. Whereas mm -hmm. at least in Buffy and Angel... It was done in the guise of like, oh, I didn't realize episode 17 was going to be right. an important episode or whatever. But anyway. Well, and in television, I feel like there's more time to develop characters than you would in the space of a, you know, a two hour film or whatever. But anyway, yeah. uh, but I, I agree with you about um, Linda. She's changed, but she's not um, not ruined. You know, it's not like she's a fallen woman now. Yeah. And, and I think... In a way, I understand why she doesn't 
why why in the end she does kill Countess Nadine is it's not so much that she doesn't want a relationship. She just doesn't want to be the subservient one in the relationship. And, and I think I understand that on a level. Um, yeah. It's, it's not that she loves the relationship, but she understands that in order to give herself over completely to it, she would always be the lesser one in the, you know, she would be the less dominant. And I, I kind of get that, you know, well, uh, well, go on. Well, I was going to say, and to to that point, like, obviously, she was privy to who Nadine was, and not only to who she was, but also that her biggest introduction to her, even though she had dreamed about her prior, was on this stage. And I feel like that stage in and of itself works great as the, in the mise-en-scene, as as just being a weird scene in general. But also, I feel like there's a weird uh, metatextual element of, like, where uh, a person is almost like a premonition of what's to come right. and they're essentially spilling their guts, uh, which is a lot like what the theater is in general, but uh, spilling their guts as to who they are and what they want. And so I feel like it was doomed from that moment where she was a captive audience, literally, right. <laughs> uh, in, in that first uh, corporeal meeting. No, I think you're right. Um, I think there, you know, and I think there's a lot of, um, I mean, obviously there's a lot of sleepwalking imagery in it too, but there's a lot of hidden panic and fear regarding, you know, uh, somnobulism, if you will, but like specifically doing something aberrant, quote, while sleepwalking, (laughs) you know, and you'll notice in the second seduction scene in which Linda literally sleepwalks into (laughs) Countess Nadine's arms, you can see the Countess posing Linda like she does uh, you know, the redhead uh, mannequin woman, for lack of a better word, in the stage act. And of course, that character seems to be in the state of deep sleep or hypnosis. And I, I think Linda might be seeing this and going, oh, I'm going to be the latest in the line. I mean, there's even a point where um, uh, Jess Franco's character in in, um, in the cellar talks about, oh, well, she just, you know, she just uh, seduces and hypnotizes women and then she, uh, you know, uh, basically discards them. And now we know, of course, because we've heard uh, Countess Nadine talking to Morpho, she says that, oh, I feel differently about Linda than I do about anybody else. But Linda doesn't know that. So for her, she feels like, well, maybe I'm just going to be the latest one and I need to do something to exert, like, you know, self-determination, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, you know? Yeah. Well, and I'll say one thing about the Jess Franco character mm-hmm. uh it's his name uh um, method or oh Mehmet. okay there we go oh, okay yeah uh so i'll say one thing about the character of Mehmet, plays by jess franco which is that i think the the saving grace of that plot line for me because it is so ridiculous and tonally off balance from the rest of the movie well yeah it, it feels that, it feels a little um um added to or tacked on at times you know yeah so go on and i think what makes it work uh in spite of that is the fact that technically despite the fact that he's a horrible person and it's horrific and you know there's no sympathy there but mm-hmm. that he is the flip side of a character like nadine which is that sure. he for on admits what he's doing uh, when he's talking to his various victims about how he essentially tries to torture them. Well, not tries, but he tortures them 
into essentially proclaiming their love for him. Yeah. Uh, even though he also is self-aware enough to know that it doesn't actually mean it, but as long as he gets them to that point before he kills them, uh, it's this ultimate form of degradation, you know, oh. of, of the human spirit. And personally, as bleak as that is, it's not that far removed as what something like what Nadine is doing, but with sex, you know, it's kind sure. of trade violence for sex. And I kind of like that as, as despicable as he is. And, you know, obviously that, that character is ridiculous and I love God bless him, Jess Franco <laughs> for that performance. But, uh, you know, Soledad Miranda's smoldering eyes are that mm. same level of like manipulation, but also self awareness of mm -hmm. like being trapped in this weird prison of like, well, I have one thing I can do <laughs> and I'm going to do it. And it's the only thing that keeps me going, you know, whatever. And I, sure. I don't know. I, I find them to be a weirdly parallel. I, I, I feel like it's actually unintentional. I don't think Jess Franco was true. I do think he was like, oh, this movie needs a crazy psychopath <laughs> and whatever. But unintentionally speaking, I do think that there is a kind of weird parallel there between the, uh, the outrageousness of his character and the more muted form of seduction of uh, Soledad Miranda's character. It's an interesting point. Um, I mean, like I said about the idea of um, Linda's um, or, or, or maybe more the uh, filmmakers idea of homosexual panic. I mean, if this film had been made like, you know, 10 or 15 years before there would have had to have been some sort of very clear ending in which, lesbianism or bisexuality was rebuked you know in a very moral way you know in a, in a yes. in, you know but in this case i think it's interesting because not only is it's it's done in 1971 but i think it's interesting because it relates to the idea like i said about persona of you're losing your own self or your personality uh in the throes of ecstasy right and then you blame this aberrant sexual behavior on the outside source, you know, on the on the Countess Nadine, because you don't want to um, possibly confront the idea that this passion is coming from within, because then it implicates you as somebody who wanted this thing. Um, I don't. I, I mean, I, I guess that's not really all that related to anything, but I, I just no, I think so. it's I think it's interesting because, like you said about. You know, there's two different forms of seduction being done there, and uh, yeah, you know, both are trying to get a reaction, yes, so to speak. Yes, and uh, I will say that the reason why this doesn't, for me at least, veer into gay panic mm -hmm. is that well, two reasons, which is that a the Jess Franco characters, <laughs> that entire storyline completely overshadows any brutality that is or is not happening in <laughs> the main storyline. Like sure. it is, it is day and night uh, as like, this is, you know, for the cheap seats of like <laughs> horror and whatnot. And also there's some sexy time happening over here. And even sure. if that's crass and juvenile, um, you know what? Uh, there's uh, at least some value in that kind of uh, juxtaposition because it means that in Jess Franco's eyes, at least his priorities are straight, which is that uh, torture, misogyny, whatever. This is, you know, the real horror. Right. And, um, 
in, in the main storyline, we have a more of a psychosexual odyssey and not a condemnation. Right. Well, I mean, you know, the um, Linda Nadine relationship is far more attractive. I mean, not just aesthetically or sexually for people like us, but I mean, just in general, it's it's a it, it feels like a much more give and take to an extent. You know, like Linda. Absolutely. A, I mean, once Linda sleepwalks into the. Um, into the house in the second act. I mean, she's, she very much takes on the dominant role, um, which yep. actually reminds me, I wanted to talk about um, that scene where uh, Countess Nadine is holding that large chalice and she says, Oh, this is blood, you know, yes. it, which to me is very, I mean, now nah, I was raised Catholic as I know you were. Too, I was going to say, yeah, but it's, it's very much related to, it sounds a lot like the liturgy uh, of of a ca- of your average Catholic mass, where the priest is blessing the host and the wine, he says, "You know, this is my mm-hmm. blood, the 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 blood of the new and everlasting it's been given for to you." you. Yep. Right, and uh, for the forgiveness of sins, and it, it, it's very interesting because then a few seconds later, the countess says, "Well, the queen of the night will bear you up on her black wings," which to me sounds like a riff on Psalm ninety one. Are you sure it's not some 41? It was some 41. Yes. They had that song, Fat Lip, which is a fantastic, man. I, I, I dare you to not dance to that song when it comes on because Fat Lip is a catch. Going song. to the party. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I For, yeah. What is it? Uh, oh, no. It's uh, Storming Through the Party Like My Name is El Nino. Yeah. Storm, yep. yep. Anyway. <laughs> oh, so good. Anyway. That was my dumb Catholic joke of the day. I loved it. Uh, but you know, in Psalm, thir- Psalm 91, I should say, it says, surely he shall deliver thee. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. So for whatever reason, Franco decided to get that in there. Well, it's funny because I never think of any of his films as being religious. I don't know what Franco was in real life. And sure. I feel like that's evident in his movies. Like, Sure. While I do think he can accidentally stumble into imagery or whatever. Mm-hmm. However, I will say I'm always uh, it's always movies like this that feel more religious to me. And I say that as an atheist, I'm not saying sure. that sure. that's the only viewpoint I think is valid, but mm-hmm. that's my viewpoint. Right. But I will say the more religious movies I respond to are the movies that are not about religion. And I think there is an element here because, and this is probably just me and my atheism talking, but it's funny because I think of a relationship with God as being a subservient one. And so when I see a movie like this, uh, however unintentional, this is where I start to think of like, well, you know, is this like a spiritual film in some ways, and it, even if not intentional? Sure. But this is kind of where I approach the idea of spiritualism, which is basically, for me at least, something that is almost ethereal and you know out there and uh, unexplainable, but then also easily corruptible, oh. uh, and which explains why I'm an atheist, uh, as far as no, that, that perspective in and of itself. But uh, and it's something like this where I kind of go like, oh, you know what? I can understand why anybody is religious, even if I'm not, you know, whatever. So, yeah. Well, that's an interesting point. Um, one could argue um, e- even even somebody who's very uh, devout might argue that um, our relationship with God is somewhat subservient because no matter what, I mean, you're dealing with, if, if you believe in the Christian tenets, you're believing in an idea of an uh, omnipotent and omniscient uh a personage you know so i mean in a way it's like well you know i mean how 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 would that not be 
an example of um, a deity and an acolyte. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And I will say, like I said, I don't know what Franco was or wasn't, but mm-hmm. his, I don't know if it was his favorite, but it's clearly one of his favorites. Uh, uh, one of his favorite writers was the Marquis de Sade, ah. and he made, uh, you know, Eugenie, or in this, or really his philosophy of the boudoir, because uh, that's where Eugenie, the character, comes from, uh, which I have read. It's kind of boring. Uh, yeah, it's true. I, I would say the de Sade's work is a little on the boring side. It's scandalous, and Every yet- once in a while... <laughs> I'm I'm into it. Uh ironically, like I think he's good in something like uh well, ironically, in uh the hundred and twenty days of Sodom. Mm-hmm. I think because you it's unfinished that. I know. I think because it's unfinished, so it's really is just the meat of his sure. uh, you know, affectations and quirks and whatnot. Right. Uh even though it's actually longer than something like philosophy in the boudoir. Uh God wow we're really going hardcore here <laughs> no that's all right but, uh yeah go on no but i will say uh he franco has made philosophy in the boudoir like i don't know a dozen times i mean <laughs> at least six or so including a movie soledad miranda was in mm. six or so of his movies were named eugenie with some kind of subtitle you know so huh. like that was a work of fiction that he responded to and remade or at the very least reacted to uh, over and over again. And while I don't think of Desaad as a – literally, obviously, he wasn't uh, particularly, if any, religious person. Uh, I also think technically atheism is a form of spiritualism in some ways. Absolutely. Because it's a reaction, so to speak. And so I do think it does seep into, uh, at least into Franco's work. I, you know, while I do think Desaad, you know, doth protest too much, (laughs) I think Franco takes his moral uh, hangups and whatnot and does wrestle with them in a way where Desaad was like on paper, just like, nope, this is the libertine way. And, you know, that's all it is, folks, or whatever. But I think what's interesting is he adopts that uh, very rigid and strict uh, the the writings of I should say of Desaad and whatnot, and it seeps into I think a lot of his movies, which but it drops all pretense of being uh, spiritually superior. So ah. it does have this weird gray area of being. Uh, I think really open to not only interpretation because of the abstract uh, stuff that's happening, but also being uh, a gray area for anyone to really kind of plug and play their own beliefs, whether this is a, because I can see anyone seeing something like Vampiros Lesbos, seeing like, okay, this is one of the most like atheistic things because it's so hedonistic and so, you know, just instinctual and whatnot, but also the exact opposite seeing, well, no, there's a bit of a Catholic guilt happening, or you know, and so right. on and so forth. And there's a million other variations in between and whatnot. I don't know why I think Catholicism is like the uh, right to atheism's left, but uh, that's probably just my own Catholic upbringing. Well, I mean, it probably was for Desaad because I, I feel like Catholicism was still the dominant uh, form of Christianity. Uh, I'm trying to remember what time Desaad was was writing because I feel like it was like five I, o'clock. 
Right, right. Like 5 p.m. <laughs> no, I, I can't remember if it was pre-Reformation or post. Um, but at any rate, the Holy Roman Empire was still very much the dominant yeah. uh, religion in Western civilization at the time. Uh, so speaking of religion or the, Abra- the Abrahamic religions in general, hmm. uh, and this sort of relates to – I want to talk about the score a bit. Um, yes. I really liked how the score in the last 10 minutes of the film, it intermingled the um, Muezzin's call to prayer. I think I'm pronouncing it right. You know, the the guy that's at the um, the crest of a minaret, and he's basically calling everybody to prayer through either through a loudspeaker or just the strength of his voice. Yes. But it, it worked improbably well in a score. I'm sure there wasn't any plan to do that, but the intermingling of it worked really well and i thought that was really intriguing i i would completely agree and i also think that that's where jess franco himself has his uh roots as in uh being a jazz musician because that's where right. he was before even he started making movies and it's also why most of his scores uh skew towards a jazz like uh, uh particularly the session based jazz where it's sure. just kind of you know like start recording you know like you know feel it out type whatnot and uh so i'm completely with you in that i feel like a lot of the things that happen not only just in the movie itself as far as shooting wise but of course in the score as well is those kind of happy accidents where you're in good hands with a person who at the very least knows what he feels works and doesn't work right um but also you know keeps it together and you know just it it plays lead guitar so that way everybody can kind of follow along uh and and ironically then it becomes more of the you know the horns that stand out because he's not the brightest bulb or anything like that but he knows what he wants what he likes whatever and then he surrounds himself and i think that's especially true with like casting and whatnot Mm. but with other people who are just, I think, doing superlative uh, performances and or work behind the scenes. Uh, so the score, though, I would say is no different. And ironically, uh, behind the scenes, he didn't have as much involvement with the score. I mean, I'm sure he was always kind of a perfectionist as far as like, you know, approving or not approving of, you know, whatever came his mm-hmm. way sure. compared to even other elements of the shoot like maybe lighting or cinematography or anything sure. like that but vampiro with lesbos if you watch the quote-unquote standard version just the regular version is the german co-production and whatnot uh in the spanish version that was commissioned uh some years after mm. i think it was two or three years uh after the original german production came out he provides the score to the Spanish version. Like that is actually his oh. uh, full-on score, and it's a lot more uh, like discordant uh, piano keys. And, and in fact, there's like one moment in this version, the regular version, uh, that is actually more like what the score is, which is when I think um, he, <laughs> uh, as uh, Mehmet, is ascending the stairs to get. Is it Linda? I believe. Yeah, I uh-huh. think it's in the third yeah, act. Yeah. And there's that kind of very abrupt, like, almost (laughs) Hans Zimmer-esque, you know, like, let's just pound on the piano, whatever. Totally. And while there's definitely that kind of organ, uh, you know, whirling dervish uh, Mm -hmm. to the Spanish version, there's a lot more of his influence, which is those kind of weird discordant chords. Well, that's interesting. I, 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 of course, I haven't seen the Spanish version. I've only seen this German version. 
but I, I was really impressed, actually. Don't recommend it. Okay. <laughs> you heard it here first, people. Uh, I mean, I, unfortunately, I will say it's a lot less nudity, and mm. I'm sorry, but I'm basic. And mm, if you're going to watch Jess Franco, mm. you kind of need it. It's true. And B, uh, there is a oh, atrocious narrator, uh, which is basically, first it's a male character. I forget who even is in narrating in the opening scene. I mean, it switches to, I think, Linda, and it explains like all of her dreams and all of her actions. <laughs> it is, it's so ridiculous. Wow. So. Yeah, I mean, he wrote it after he wrote the movie itself, so I don't even buy it as, like, canonical of, like, well, he was always <laughs> thinking this. Right. But basically, he had to make it more approachable for the Spanish board censors. Well, that being said, I, I really liked the score for this one. I, I know I went on a lot about the score in the last episode about Space Truckers, but I, I really wanted to say, well, okay, so first of all, the score was composed by two guys – who are named, I swear to God, Manfred Hubler and Siegfried Schwab, which uh, if I was trying to come up with two totally fake German names, I could do no better. Those are like the most awesome fake German aliases ever. Now, so the parts I liked the most were not so much the dancey stuff. And I know we can talk about the dancey revival later, but, or most of the organ and sitar stuff, which was, to be honest with you, I felt more kind of your standard issue, early 70s psychedelic noodling, which is fine, but it's the kind of music, I don't remember who said this first, but they said it's the kind of music where it's much more fun for the musicians to play than for the audience to listen to. So now it's fine. And there are some really good points, but the parts of the score that I loved, the stuff that I thought was totally like marvelous and creative and really caught my attention were, were the bits like in the opening credits where you've got like this band. Well, it sort of sounds like Franco like found like this... <laughs> Found this game experimental, uh, uh, you know, kraut rock band that yeah. that had like just discovered like dub delay effects, which I love. So the the best stuff, the the stuff I consider the best, I should say, is like Faust meets uh, an electro acoustic composer's stuff. You know, the stuff like the mumbled like two-way and or cb radio chatter that's been backmasked it is like floating over top uh it's it's like floating over top of the um whatever the heavy organ ballad is or whatever it is and you know you see the same cb chatter crops up at really impactful moments like when we see the trickle of blood on the glass door i remember you and i were talking about that it's one of the recurring symbols um, and I, I just love it, especially in the credits. I, I, it really works. And, and, and of course it, it appears later when you see those repetitions of shots, you see the score popping back as a sort of re reoccurring theme, like where they show, um, like, uh, at the beginning, they show Countess Nadine on the floor, you know, staring at the camera and she's got her red scarf blowing, but it's, it's clearly in reverse. So it fits really well with the back masked, uh, CB or two-way radio stuff. I just absolutely love it. Yeah, because I believe those syllables are in reverse. Uh, yeah. 
recording at least um, kind of the whole Paul is dead type thing, except right. with no with no message <laughs> because it's 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 not even like a some kind of Easter egg of like oh it's actually saying something. It's like no, it's just gibberish and whatnot. Right. Well, you know the thing it kind of reminded me of. I don't know if you've seen this film, but the the whole like nonsensical thing kind of reminded me of the nonsensical radio broadcasts in uh, Jean Cocteau's film Orpheus. Where I'm not. It's fantastic. Uh, throughout it, they're tuning into the radio and and like listening to this stuff. And Orpheus's character is like writing it down because he thinks it's like really pure poetry. And it, it turns out Cocteau was was inspired to do it because he was thinking of bits of code that he remembered from the French Resistance days. So like, yeah. it could be anything from like seemingly random numbers to like. A phrase like, you know, the bird sings with its fingers, you know, and I'm, I'm positive Franco had seen Orpheus at that point. I mean, I just, I can't imagine him not seeing Cocteau's Orpheus. And then of course, again, I feel I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, but there's, uh, I mentioned uh, Jean-Claude Brousseau's Secret Things earlier. He has another film called Exterminating Angels, not to be confused with the Buñuel film. This is not. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Well, it's like, yeah, like Buñuel's the exterminating angel, and this is exterminating angels, plural, without the. But there's a lot of stuff in it where there's clearly references to Cocteau's um, radio broadcasts and those sort of French resistance codes. Uh, and, and I should also mention, you know, that in Secret Things, which I mentioned earlier, are two of a trilogy that I would consider in my humble opinion, some of the most scorchingly sexy and mesmeric scenes ever are in those films. I mean, so I, I just, I feel like there's, there's a weird lineage there, which I, I felt like I had to mention, you know, between Cocteau mm. to um, Franco to Brousseau, yeah. you know, and, and again, if anybody wants to watch those Brousseau films, I highly recommend it because they're fantastic. So anyway, I've always been meaning to. So, all right, Dan, I will admit that I think it's probably time to go into some closing thoughts. How dare you, sir? I know. Do you have a specific thing before we get there? That- um, I do have one question, which is... Yes, it's not really. It's, it's not even a question. It's more like... Uh, it's just a bizarre movie trope where... Like, okay. From old films where one of the, one of the men, capitalized men... Feels like he has to like slap some sense into a quote hysterical person, often a woman. Yes. And there's a scene like that in this where he's, where uh, right at the beginning of the second act where the doctor is like, you know, pull yourself together. And (laughs) when he's slapping Agra. And now uh, the reason I mentioned this partly is because just so we don't think that that trope has been, you know, permanently relegated to the attic of the past. Yeah. uh, I just want to mention that a couple of nights ago I saw. Uh, De Five Bloods, which was fantastic, by the way. Oh, and so this, I loved it. Oh, it's fantastic. You were totally right. And yeah. I, I mean, I like Spike I Lee am. in general, but this was definitely a, a, one of his most masterful films. But there's a scene in it, and this came out this year, where Delroy Lindo's character is like slapping another guy. He's like, pull yourself together, man. And I'm like, what is yeah. it with this trope? It keeps reappearing. So, I mean, like, as True. much as I'd like to, you know, be proud and say, oh, we've moved past it. It's like, damn, this shit keeps coming <laughs> Although, up. You know? at the very least, Defy Bloods is very self-aware about Delroy Lindo's character. Absolutely. 
uh, and and portraying him uh, in a very deliberate manner. Oh so, yeah, there's uh, there's nothing that Spike Lee does that I don't that think, I think is self aware. Kind of oh no no, I just thought like it was that. interesting that but, Spike Lee uh, used that yeah. trope again. No, it's still present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay, the other thing I uh, the other thing I want to say is yeah. so I have the section here and it's it's in my notes and the, what I wrote was God damn it, Nick, I've got some questions for you. Okay, and and this is just you know you can be lightning round. We can do this really fast, but. I was going to say, I, that's the only way I can probably answer any of these questions. Because I will say before you ask them, yes. when it comes to Jess Franco, and I think I kind of alluded to this, or if not outright stated it, but the best way to watch these movies and really think about them, despite the fact of what we've been doing for the past hour or so, <laughs> right. is to not think about them. However, I want to know what your questions are, and I will do my best to answer them in the most uh, uninformed way. That's fair. And they, these are semi-serious, but somewhat serious, too. I mean, okay. okay, so the first one is, what the hell are those drawings in the psychiatrist's or analyst's notes? I love oh, them. Oh, man. I took, like, screenshots of them because they were so interesting, but I'm like, what do you, what does Nick think I'm, that's about? Okay. I have no opinions, but I'm glad you asked mm-hmm. because Stephen Thrower <laughs> has ah. an, uh, if if not an opinion, I don't think he's actually. I think he's being cheeky, mm-hmm. but I think it's too hilarious not to share. Sure. Which is that he he notes that for the listener at home, in case either a you forget or b you haven't watched the movie, uh, mm-hmm. the psychiatrist while our, our character <laughs> it's Linda, right? Not oh Agra. yeah, yeah, yeah no, Linda. it's Linda. She's recounting yeah. her dreams. And uh, such. While she's recounting, you know, and getting really into her psychosis here, uh, this it cuts to the psychiatrist literally drawing stick figures uh, yeah. while she is talking, and it's almost like it's almost not even a joke. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there are some movies that would do that exact same shot reverse shot, whatever, to like hammer home, like, ha ha ha, he's not right, and yet. Because this is Jess Franco, because whatever, it's like, while I do think it probably was that, and that's the end of that conversation, like, he was trying to say psychiatry is shit, whatever, which I'm not saying I agree with, or whatever. No, I don't either, but, but yeah. I mean, you know, this, like you said, this is the same psychiatrist who slaps people to try to, uh, you know, get them to come out of their psychosis, right, I guess. Right, right, yes. uh, One thing Stephen Thrower points out uh, hilariously in the book, is that in the stick figure drawing, you see stick figures aplenty. Mm-hmm. You see one regular one. You see one holding a camera. Yeah. And then you see one with six arms. And apparently, yes, I noticed uh, that. Stephen Thrower, I think, astutely uh, and cheekily points out that it's like, well, you know, Jess Franco is literally trying to convey to the audience that he's a jack of all trades. So even when he's trying to make these movies and, you know, shooting often many of them at the same time, he's like that guy with six arms and he's just trying to do everything at once oh, uh, okay. and um i don't and nor do i think uh thrower is genuinely trying to because i do think it's just a throwaway dumb joke a throwaway uh, hey hello Sorry, go uh on. but i i do think when i read that i was like well that's better than any interpretation i could have come up with but that's the thing there are so many movies of jess franco where I'm not saying there's stick figures aplenty, right. but he cuts to something, and your first question is, why? <laughs> why, why, Jess? And that's outside of, like, the abstract parts. I mean, I don't think, you know, even you included, like, when it cuts to, like, the, the scorpion 
you know, you have the exact same reaction to that than you do like the stick figure, right. you know, because at least there you're like, okay, this is symbolism. What do you do? You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But even outside of that context, there's moments through his entire filmography where he tries to either make a dumb joke or he tries to give a character slightly more, uh, you know, screen time or whatever. And it is so bizarre in the way he goes about that, that it almost unfortunately takes on a life of its own where yes, myself included, you start to give just more credit than credit is due because (laughs) nobody else would actually do it. So therefore you're like, well, maybe he knows something I don't, (laughs) (laughs) you know, whatever. But so unfortunately, I have no uh, answers, but I giggle every time I see it because it's so fucking absurd and hilarious, uh, which is probably the only thing that that was intended to do. So congratulations, Jess. Right. But but yeah, no, I'm with you. It's it's ridiculous. I mean, I I really liked it. And it actually reminded me a bit of, um, again, Louis Bunnell, where he'd have this moment where this really, you know, these two straight face characters are having a conversation and one person's doing something totally absurd at the same time, you know? Yeah. So I did like that, but I was just curious. Okay. So my, my, my next question yeah. is, so the <clears throat> torturer in the cellar, the Jess Franco character. Mm-hmm. So did he go insane after his wife was made delirious by Countess Nadine or was he always a torturer? And Seriously, brother, what do you make of this? I'm just curious. So this, I do have a little more concrete uh, Mm. thoughts, mostly because of what I've read about the production, Mm. which is... So the the character itself, uh, there's a little more lip service paid in the Spanish version Mm. uh, that Jess put together of that character, uh, where essentially... Him and his wife attended to that hotel, basically. They owned it together. And then his wife, I don't know why, who knows why, Mm -hmm. uh, went over to the estate of the Countess, went crazy in the exact same process that Agra and Linda and everybody else or whatever. And I believe either the Countess killed her or she committed suicide. Uh. I don't think that's clear. But basically she perished in the face of that experience and it's because of that which makes no sense either even psychologically (laughs) speaking uh that uh mehmet uh essentially decides to torture women i mean it makes sense in the basic misogynistic way of like just men being assholes and uh, unable to cope with trauma uh but uh as as to why there's a correlation between a and b it doesn't make any sense but i believe that is what is supposed to be both inferred from just the standard german version but then also laid uh, explicit uh and i think that's really the only thing in the spanish version where i completely buy but that's what jess was going for Hmm. in the original run through like when he tries to explain the abstract stuff of like linda's dreams or whatever i feel like "Eh, now i feel like you're kind of just trying to like (laughs) wade into the waters of whatever but i'm pretty sure jess had a whole backstory in mind for that character he played uh you know 
in the, only because they're so disconnected that it does feel like scenes are missing, whereas I don't feel like anything's missing from the main storyline uh, in the same way I do with uh, the character uh, Mehmet and whatnot. So, so yeah, it's basically that his wife was the same kind of victim as uh, Agra and uh, Linda and, and perished in the, in the face of that basically. And so in order to deal with that trauma, he decided to uh, torture women yeah. to death. I mean, um, as no, that's you fine. do, uh, like I you do. Guess. Yeah, right. No, no, I mean, yeah. I, okay, fair enough. All right. Well, that's a better yeah. explanation than I had, than I had before I asked the question. I will say that anytime. So a couple more questions. Yes. Regarding the laws of vampirics. Okay. So, daytime and sunlight... I've seen a lot of Buffy, so I'm good at this. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, but, like, daytime and sunlight, really no problem for the Countess. Hmm. No, not at all. And frankly, I love it. Uh, well, it works I well aesthetically. That is... <laughs> I think that is genuinely one of the greatest parts of this entire movie is that it completely rebukes any sense of sunlight being, uh, if anything, it seems like sunlight gives her power, which sure. frankly seeing Soledad Miranda in a bikini lounging by the pool. Mm. I can completely understand mm -hmm. as to why uh, sunlight may give her power. I uh, to put it lightly. Yes. Yeah. So no, I <laughs> love that. Uh, <laughs> but i love that jess franco even if i think it's once again it's just because he's a perv whatever <laughs> uh but the that pervy instinct is a weird rebuke of the normal vampire lore which is yeah. that no you know what technically speaking like we're, we're not doing this pasty gary oldman shit right like we are going full on like yeah soledad miranda's gonna sit on a lounge chair in the baking sun mm -hmm. and you're not gonna be able to take her your eyes off of her and if anything that's what gives her power and and i absolutely love it so no i don't think he's at all uh trying to subscribe to the normal uh you know rules mm -hmm. and regulations of vampirism but i do think his hilarious disregard of them uh, actually turns into a uh not just sexy but also weirdly powerful uh yeah repudiation of that well fair enough uh, and then i guess my other question about loss of vampirics was why does morpho's body disappear like the countess's does at the end it doesn't make sense he's not a vampire we know for a fact he isn't because when he kills the uh uh the doctor the professor at the clinic we know yeah. he's not he's impervious to the uh, uh latin mass um exorcism that the guy's trying to do so why does why, do you have a theory about why morpho's body disappears okay i'll give you two answers which is my first answer is i have no idea. My <laughs> second answer is I have an idea, <laughs> yes. which is that I don't think this is true at all, but bear with me here. Go on. Uh, some vampire fiction kind of branching off of the vampire lore idea and the concept of a sire right. where you are not a vampire like it's it's like what I would call a half turn where sure. the vampire essentially did do something and i think it's it well it is different depending on which piece of media i'm talking about mm -hmm. but that 
believes and buys into that concept where it's like they do a version of the normal ritual whether it's like they bite the neck but they don't suck as much blood or whatever it is uh but you you become this kind of sire in buffy it was more literal in buffy it was literally like if you were a sire you were a vampire you were just it means that you were somebody's bitch basically ah, <laughs> uh, it means okay, that no, you were like for example angel was turned by darla and angel was an extremely powerful being but if darla came into town that was the person who turned him you know so Ooh, on and so forth so i think this is a bastardization of that idea sure. which is that he is not a vampire and i think pointedly so i don't think jess franco has any interest in men ascending to the same plane as women right. in any of his movies uh let alone in a movie like this sure. um but certainly uh, there is a connection there, maybe even blood flow, uh, so to speak, uh, that ties them together, binds them together. And like I said, he's like the most pathetic groupie ever. Uh, to the point where that, yes, if she perishes, so does he, probably and presumably due to however she first bonded him, so to speak. So I don't have a concrete theory as to, you know, Mostly because I don't think Jess Franco has ever thought about it. Uh, but I do think it is tied up into that. It's actually a pretty satisfying answer, surprisingly. Um, okay, so my last question is yes. just all caps, question mark, <laughs> uh, many exclamation points. Yoda! You're going to have to elaborate that one. Okay, so... <clears throat> I love how you said that. Yoda! And frankly, hold on. Sure. I will say this. When you explain it, then it might actually all click for me, and I'll be like, oh, that's whatever. Sure. But because it didn't, I love the fact that you said that, and in my opinion, we're extremely confident that I was going to get it, <laughs> and unfortunately, my dumbass did not. So no, please explain yourself. Uh, no, no, it's fine. It's just, okay, so apparently, <clears throat> according to the extras on Vampiros Lesbos, uh, Jess Franco was very good friends with a guy who did some some very sophisticated makeup effects and uh, special effects. Now it wasn't like Rick Baker, you know. It wasn't like uh, yeah. Tom Savini or, or you know or uh, right. Phil, Phil Tip. Uh, well, I'm mean, Phil Tip. It was more animatronics, but anyway. But he was one of those guys, and apparently he did four movies with Jess Franco. So then he went off and he did a bunch of other movies too. So he was hired by Lucas to do uh, Yoda, right? For Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Yeah. And so he's apparently later on, this guy whose name escapes me is um, runs into Jess Franco in the early 80s. And he's like, Hey, I hope you're not mad at me. And Jess Franco's like, No, why would I be mad at you? I love your work. And he's like, Well, because of the Yoda thing. And he's like, uh, Jess Franco's like, I love Yoda. Yoda, I love, I love that character. He's such a, such a, such a brilliant character. I know you did the design. He goes, Well, yes, but I, um, <clears throat> I, uh, modeled the design after you. <laughs> So Jess okay. Franco thought that was the coolest thing ever, which I admit anyone would. He was like, okay. oh my God, I am Yoda. Jess Franco, Yoda, same guy. <laughs> and so there's a scene, there, so there's a little like special feature in the Vampires Lesbos Blu-ray, and they actually show him holding like this uh, Christmas ornament that has Yoda on it. 
And he's like, he's like cradling it, like, mm, I love my Yoda order. <laughs> and it's just fantastic. And I had no idea until after I had seen the film and I watched some of the special features. So I was like, Yoda! Okay. A couple things. A, I did not watch that particular feature no uh, on the disc. Sure. Uh, so A, my mind is blown. <laughs> and A, that is why I love the mythos of Jess Franco, because I do think he's only a few degrees removed from the mainstream consciousness. Totally. Uh, B, when you were telling that story, by the time you got to the point in which you said uh, that guy met up with him years later and said... <laughs> I, you know, I hope when my mind did go there before you, you know, had said that, I'm like, oh my God, Yoda is actual likeness is Jess Franco. Honestly, Um, it's true. Like I, when he's telling the story, it was only like three or four years before he died and he's sitting in this armchair and he's talking and you're like, I think I know where he's going. He is sort of Yoda. And you can even see from when you watch his performance in Vampires Lesbos, you can see, you know, he does oh, yeah. have that it, sort of. Uh, particularly during that era, that's what he looked like. He had that weird, uh, I don't mean the pejorative. No, no, but, no. no. Uh, hey, he was married to Lena Romay, another uh, person he, uh, well, was in a lot of his movies. And uh, so good on him. Anyway. I concur. Uh, <laughs> but he had that kind of weird oval shaped head that I think, uh, oh man, that, that is one of the greatest things ever. I know. Well, I mean, they said he was even his mannerisms and his, I mean, not necessarily his yeah. speech because you know, he doesn't invert his speech, but if but Yoda I mean, just, was allowed to smoke in those movies, I'm sure he would have. I mean, that's the big boom. thing, you know, like that is the only thing Yoda is missing, uh, is a, is a little Siggy between the little puppet fingers. Uh, <laughs> I could totally uh, to, see it. Oh, man. And, you know, I told you uh, before we recorded this episode oh, yeah. that I uh, went on the Severin website. Uh, this Because we are recording this on, what is it, Saturday? Which is the day after. Uh, yes. Yeah, the, this particular Black Friday. Yes. And while capitalism is a horrible thing in which we go a little bit uh, in-depth on in our well, Space Truckers episode. This form of capitalism is certainly problematic, I would agree. Oh, yeah. I'm also <laughs> a, a victim of it. And uh, come uh, yesterday, uh, I did go on a Severin and ordered one of the greatest things ever, which was a Jess Franco tree topper, complete with uh, a little Siggy and his little uh, clay oh, resin fingers. Awesome. I didn't I even know. notice that part. I noticed he was wearing a Santa hat. I noticed that. I had to see a Facebook comment pointed out before I realized that it was in there. So, anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Love but, it. Oh, Uncle Jess. Right. Ne- never ch- never change, which he won't because he's dead. And well, frankly, true. I think he would laugh at that joke, so I don't feel bad about saying that. But uh, <laughs> Well, oh, and, and, and just watching him holding the ornament when only a few days earlier you had shown me the ornament that Severin had made, I'm mm. like, God, it, the, the layers of reference are just so beautiful. Full circle. Yeah. Yeah. So. so anyway, those were my those were my goddamn it, Nick. I've got some questions for you. Those are my questions. Well, frankly, I think that is a great uh, segue into our closing thoughts. Um, yes. Do you mind going first no, uh, into know. closing thoughts? So uh, take it away. What did you think of Vampiris Lesbos? Um, final ratings, I would say, is four stars. Although I might go up more later, um, considering how seminal it is. 
Now, it's weird because I struggled because I considered knocking it down a half star to three and a half because I felt like the film was playing a little too fast and loose with its own, you know, in-universe rules, the yeah. vampiric laws and all that. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, you know what, they're not hard and fast. So, but clearly, like I said, the film is seminal and a major influence and obviously of major significance. So, four stars. Right on. I, A, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, B, I'm actually going to echo Oh, what you said. I know it's ironic because I feel like I'm always super uh, high on Jess Franco, but I also take it at face value. So I think this is, uh, for me as well, four out of five stars. I think it's fantastic. And I'm always kind of teetering on four to four and a half for this particular film. But I will admit, after rewatching it, I both loved it. And I did start to solidify a few other movies of his that I like more than this. Mm. I think this is easily his, maybe his best in the sense that it's just like the one you want to show to other people who may not like any other film he ever made um but for one in his life he did kind of break through uh break on through to the other side so to speak uh thank you jim morrison and um, i'm sure he was a fan yeah <laughs> and i you know, I, it's one of those things where, like what you said, I, I definitely agree in the sense that, you know, there's no real uh, adherence to any kind of, uh, you know, rules or anything like that. But from this era on, he really did take on this kind of dream logic uh, mode of operating. And I think, you know, mostly that's actually when he is at his best. So from the 70s to the 80s, uh, he was just putting out... Uh, a, a lot of movies so some of them are very bad but some of them are very good and this is uh no exception i will give a shout out to the fact that he made vampiros lesbos at the exact same time he made she killed an ecstasy which is another movie starring soledad miranda before she tragically was uh passed away due to a car accident at a very young age and both of these movies uh vampiros and she killed an ecstasy are two of his all-time best and a are two of the greatest showcases for her who was only in about five or six of his movies or so but clearly she was i think and not in a pejorative sense she was on her way to becoming uh one of his muses because he very much did like to reuse actors and actresses uh, throughout his entire career uh and then you know to the point where he even married one of them uh but Soledad Miranda, and maybe, unfortunately, because her life was taken so young, really did end up being, like, the the one that, well, got away. You know, like, the one where mm -hmm. it's so undeniable when she's on the screen, and, and she, I think, so effortlessly uh, captures what Jess is trying to do with that kind of uh, weird mixture of young beauty but smoldering uh you know uh effortless uh seduction and it's just pure alchemy and it's movie magic to me at least so i think vampiros lesbos besides being a great showcase for jess franco if not one of his best not his best but is soledad miranda's finest hour i think uh in in his uh in one of his productions, at least. So I think it's fantastic. I think it's very much 
one of those things that everybody should at least try once if they're into exploitation filmmaking, particularly if they want to see something that's uh, prominent in the Euro cult scene. And uh, frankly, you know, uh, at the very least, you'll see some naked sexy times. So it's like, you know, like at the end of the day, you're not going to waste that much time. But right. I do think it supersedes that, and it's actually a genuinely great piece of filmmaking. So four out of five stars for me for Vampiros Lesbos. Nice. Four for both of us. Nice. Yeah. And frankly, uh, ironically, no matter how much I love this movie, no matter how much I love Jess Franco, this is actually only the second time I've seen it. So, I mean, there oh, wow. have been movies where it's not until the fourth or fifth time I watch it where it starts to creep up or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, if anything, it's more just a indicative of the fact that it's just as good as i remember it and i'm always excited to watch any of his movies but especially uh when he's in the zone Hmm. sounds good so yeah no i I appreciate that yeah well you know what that means Uh oh it's time for what time is it it's time for dot 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 the a list do 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 Oh, God, that theme song just gets better every time I hear it. It does. And shout outs to my sister-in-law, Teresa Brooks, for writing it. I love it. Thank Um, you, Teresa. It will always be an indelible part. The real knack for nailing that kind of stuff. It's fantastic. The first time I heard it, I was like, oh, man. And this was before we did Project Exploitation. But I was like, this this, uh, definitely, because, well... I'll just go on a little tangent and say sure. that uh, when you first shared uh, the Apocalypse Cows website with me, <laughs> I lost an entire day uh, of consciousness <laughs> because uh, I remember this. Yeah, you you had you had told me you were you know you that's what you did and whatnot, mm-hmm. but I never actually heard anything. So unfortunately, I did have that weird creeping sensation of like. Is this a real thing? Not, not. Is it a real thing of like, mm-hmm. like, is he lying? But like, no. But I hear you. Like, Everybody's if, trying to be something more than they are. Sometimes, you exactly. Know? Whatever. Mm-hmm. And once again, I did not project that. But unfortunately, I had no other like subconscious thoughts of like, oh, well, yeah, yeah, he does this. Sure, you know, whatever. Right. And then mm-hmm. the moment you gave me that URL where I could listen to uh, uh, what I assume is like a lot of the stuff you did if not oh yeah most yeah. for the most part i would say the say the bulk of it right. well i mean at least a third yeah. if not more i would say so and yeah. i just ripped that website a new asshole because i <laughs> was like at work and uh, it was a friday so i had nothing well hopefully my boss is not listening but i had nothing to do that day <laughs> and <laughs> Every, I mean, just you guys had it organized from like genres to instruments or whatever. Right. And so I just went through it. And I do remember that piece that we used, which of course, now of course I'm blanking on the title that you guys named it. Oh, was it, um, was it King Me? I remember it or, was King and so I do think it is King Me, yes. No, no, no. King Me is like, no. I think that was the one you did at the end, I think. Um, at the beginning, it King was. King Me is what we do at the end of Film Tank. Right. This is something else, isn't more orchestral, because King Me is more guitar. Uh, I don't remember gosh, what this one was. Hmm. 
but we can edit like we know what we're talking about. In right. Post. Yeah, we can always so make it. This one was blank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um and I just remember going through all those and I do remember that particular piece. Uh and so anyway, I'm glad that I'm able to be a part of a use for it. Oh, I'm glad that you found a use for a lot of those because they were a lot of fun to do, but a lot of them didn't necessarily get picked up to be used um, for their um, original destination or whatever. So, yeah, well, it's kind of fun. I will say this, Dan, you, you can cut this out if you want, but I'm going to say it for now, <laughs> which is that, you know, if we do somehow a Christmas horror episode... <laughs> I may or may not bring up a certain song that I know our audience would love to hear. And if you ever give permission to play it on the podcast, which you never have to, but you would be encouraged to, uh, I will, first of all, I will give a spiel prior. Not that you can't talk about it, but I I feel very passionate (laughs) about this piece of media. And so I would just be honored if I could bring it up. And then we will play it uh, for our listeners because I genuinely think that it's not something that should be uh, hidden from the rest of the world. Like the people need to know and the people need to have that kind of level of Christmas spirit in their lives. But I'm not going to even hint at what genre or even semblance of uh, music chicanery is happening in this particular track. But suffice to say, it is one of the greatest, and I do not say that lightly, one of the greatest holiday tracks of all time. And the vocals are courtesy of Dan Jeremy Brooks. So maybe that will make an appearance. Maybe it won't. All right. I am literally... I am literally... Just putting that out there without consulting with Dan whatsoever. So you may never hear about this ever again. But I, you know, like Babe Ruth, I would be well, remiss. I would like to do a couple Christmas horror films. So, I mean, you know, maybe it would come up. You never know. Oh, maybe it would. So, well, like Babe Ruth, I would be remiss if I didn't try to, you know, shoot my right. shot. So, well, uh, people probably don't know this, but Nick is, as far as I know, the foremost expert on Christmas horror films, perhaps of anyone. Uh, it uh, is truly. like the one niche, like, you know, I know we're doing project exploitation here, but Christmas horror is, I mean, on the one hand, there's not that many <laughs> Christmas horror films. On the other hand, there's a lot right. more than people realize. Uh, it's a shocking amount. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, so certainly when it comes to that, and I guess for some weird reason, I have a passion when it comes to it. I, I think being an atheist at Christmas time who <laughs> loves Christmas, Christmas horror right. is like a spiritual experience for me. And we'll get into that uh, <laughs> if we do one of those, which I'm sure we will. Uh, I would love to. But yeah, so, oh man. Well, that's a little tease of what may or may not come between uh, maybe Dan's vocal stylings and mine uh, of uh, Christmas uh, horror. So, but you know what? We did it once. Why don't we do it again? Cue the A-list theme song. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, it's just even better of a second time around, I gotta admit. 
<laughs> so again, Teresa Brooks. Ah, so great. Super, super genius when it comes to these, these kind of cues. So why don't we get into the A-list? Of course, this is a segment in which we take the quote-unquote B-movie we just talked about, and we pair it with a movie that is slightly more, if not widely known, uh, at the very least uh, more accessible, so to speak, and uh, come up with a double billing with that movie that either enhances or contrasts with uh, what we just talked about. I think there's really obviously a lot of different directions we can go into with this. So, Dan Jeremy Brooks, uh, what do you got for us? Well, I honestly, as I told you before, I, I kind of agonized about it for a while. I, I had a few ideas, and finally I decided to do two films just really briefly. And, you know, one of them has more to do with one angle of Vampires Lesbos, and the other kind of highlights the other angle. So the first one is more the vampire angle, and that is The Hunger by Tony Scott. Oh, yes. Yeah. Now, I mean, a lot of people probably are familiar with it if they haven't seen it. Now, uh, I mean, and normally I would take any opportunity to evangelize for Tony Scott. I think he's an absolute genius, and I could talk about him for hours. It's great. But the film does have some similarities to Vampires Lesbos and how it plays up the erotic and um, feminine, the concupiscent elements, if you will, in vampirism. But it does have its own clearly defined mood. I mean, it's not the mood of Vampiros, but it definitely stakes out its own claim. <laughs> stakes. Get yeah, it? Stakes. You son of a bitch. Ah, ah. Yes. And then there's also the small matter of um, a romantic scene in the film between Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon, which, come on, is just like. It's just not fair. A moment of. Uh, I, 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 it, you know, it's just a moment of, dare I say, a pure grace and indeed mercy, directly guided by God's own hand. I mean, that was like, wow. You know, so so there's that. Now, that said, it's not heavy on plot, uh, but it does have a lot of mood, and I really like that. So the the other film I would mention that has the sort of um, uh, highlights the more of the uh, doubling splitting angle of Empiris Lesbos is a movie I talked about a fair amount earlier, uh, Persona, uh, by Ingmar Bergman. And like I said, I mentioned this a lot already, but I think it might be a good touchstone to Vampiris because you don't necessarily have to like vampire films to like vampiros and i feel like that's true of persona as well because the vampire stuff is kind of secondary to the obsessive romance thing in vampiros and and that's certainly true for persona and also aside from the themes of the um the whole blurring identities and swapping personalities and the fact that as i said before i believe it's one of the most erotic films ever made despite the fact that there's no graphic scenes of any kind Persona does feature a taste, taste, get it, taste, of vampiric iconography in an extremely enigmatic scene near the end of the film where one of the characters begins speaking sentences of random words, so you got that, and then takes the, frankly, offered wrist of the other character and bites into it to suck out the blood. So yes. now granted it's it's not overly violent, but it is undeniable that that's what's happening in that scene. Yeah. So anyway, I, I would recommend um if people like the hunger or they like persona or they like both of them, they might want to try Vampires Lesbos because obviously it's about vampires and stuff, but it's that's kind of secondary to the obsessive love angle, I think, which is which is intriguing. So those are my suggestions for the A list. Well, those are uh I think 
great choices and Thank i you. would genuinely watch any double feature with either one of those particularly persona which was my runner up oh really for the yes i was almost and i actually kind of was like on the fence so i'm basically just glad you said that so then i'll just talk about my other one uh (laughs) and that movie too is something we've already brought up so really there's no surprises here but i will say about persona that this i do think the relationship between soda miranda and um the character of linda uh, is a very similar kind of uh, symbiosis of two actresses almost melding together of kind of showing up to a certain estate and um, really playing off of each other in a very enigmatic but entrancing way for sure. Mm-hmm. For my money, I will admit uh, this is a super basic answer, but I do think there is some value to pairing these together. But I frankly, I think it would be uh, very interesting, and I kind of now want to do this at some point, but to pair it with Coppola's Dracula. I think, uh, ah. yeah, I know it's uh, certainly. No, that's a great. Idea. As someone who's never read the book, so I can't necessarily say how either of those, you know, match up as being an adaptation, but I definitely think the thing I think about uh, both of these pictures is that uh, both directors are fans of the book you know and I think that's what's interesting is that um, you get two completely different I don't just mean quality but I mean literally like thematically and uh, you know motifs and whatnot that these two filmmakers came up with wildly divergent uh, uh, ways to tackle something that's so big like uh, Stoker's Dracula. And like you had mentioned earlier with like the Rhinefield character and whatnot, and as someone who's seen uh, the movie, obviously, uh, Coppola's Dracula, without having read the book, there are similarities enough to make this a fun kind of what's similar and then what's different. Uh, because there is a homoeroticism to uh, Coppola's Dracula, which is ironic because his movie came after Vampire's <laughs> uh, <laughs> Lesbos, and yet his movie is also more shy about it. I don't mean that there's it's not there or that uh it's not even you know maybe it's sometimes blatant but certainly and this could be the heterosexual male gaze but certainly in vampiros lesbos it is forefront (laughs) uh which oh absolutely no matter how pervy it is uh is something to weirdly commend considering it was 1971 especially because as we talked about it didn't really devolve into gay panic too much if at all outside of the very final scene for my own taste but something like dracula by coppola is is so interesting because what i like about comparing the two is that coppola takes on the whole period piece you know recreation of this story as we know it i don't know about beat for beat of the actual book, but the uh, transportation of taking you back to this uh, era, whereas Franco is completely disregarding of all of that and literally does not give a fuck <laughs> and and wants, you know, this awesome, you know, establishment and condo he found here, you know, over in <laughs> Istanbul or wherever uh, to be right. the main uh, set piece, you know, for this or for that. And 
I honestly think that that's what's kind of interesting. And so while I think the Coppola film is fantastic, but it is a movie, it's from the 90s, right? It wasn't late 80s. So. Uh, yeah, it was 1992, I want to say. Okay. So, you know, it's a movie from the 90s, kind of looking back and filtering its own sensibilities through that aspect. You know, Franco's movie is from 71, in my opinion, looking forward about the sexual mores that were uh, turbulent, but also changing at that time. And frankly, I think this is just the perfect double billing of putting on Coppola's Dracula and eating your vegetable. And I say that as someone who loves that movie, but, you know, watching that start to finish to get the real, you know, meat of that kind of uh, uh, adaptation with a capital A, and then slowly drifting off into slumber as you watch Jess Franco's Vampiros Lesbos. Uh, (laughs) So I think... That sounds great. I love that. So I I, I think that would be a fun double bill. So my choice for the A-list for this week is uh, Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Dracula. I love it. And and, I mean, I I think I've told you um, Coppola's Dracula is, um, to me, it's a five-star film. I I think it's an absolute masterpiece. It's so odd and idiosyncratic. And and, and, I mean, there's a lot of, at the time in the late, well, early 90s, late 80s, there was this sort of odd um, resonance with the AIDS crisis. I mean, there's a lot of scenes of like uh, little shots of like um, blood cells um, uh, dissolving into bubbles of absinthe it's it's just oh, fascinating yeah, yeah. You know? yeah and i will say this my parting uh words about francis for coppola's dracula is that much like jess franco's vampiris lesbos coppola does technically cast some of the sexiest people mm-hmm. totally <laughs> in in that movie and i say that uh gary oldman notwithstanding which i'm not making a, a statement about gary oldman <laughs> so much as just the makeup and whatnot or whatever but that's a movie that literally stars keanu reeves and winona Ryder. of right. uh, let alone just them but and other people as well but i mean that i mean keanu reeves is kind of i would say a, kind of a parallel to someone like soledad miranda uh, so oh yeah absolutely. you know to however many years removed obviously but that undeniable and i'm not saying either one of them are bad actors or anything like that putting that aside there is a literal magic (laughs) that happens when they are on screen that is uh almost unfair (laughs) to to any living human being so uh no that's very true uh and and i mean winona writer i i um I would need to speak for some time about my feelings towards her. So I'm I'm going to just. Well, you know what? That. We'll cover that on the next episode. And this is when I wink at Dan sarcastically uh, because I will not <laughs> allow that to happen. No, but, no, there's no way that's going to happen. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, right. I am with you, though. And uh, mm-hmm. so, yeah, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Fantastic. Obviously, you probably have seen it. If you haven't seen it, definitely give it a shot. And uh, yeah, pair it up with this as uh, well as Persona and The Hunger. Uh, I definitely think these were uh, some great choices. And that's what I think fascinating about a movie like Vampiros Lesbos is that it really does, uh, you know, lend itself to uh, influencing a lot of people and filmmakers, whether it's highbrow or lowbrow. And you you really do see its influence everywhere. So I think that's 
probably going to wrap it up for our talk on Vampiros and Lesbos. I will admit this was a lengthy episode, but mm-hmm. uh, guess what? It's just Franco, okay? So can't get mad at us but he's one of my all-time favorites and i will never pass up an opportunity to go balls deep uh <laughs> into oh, one yeah. of his one of his movies so dan jeremy brooks i just want to thank you for being here and of course uh enriching this conversation in a way i never could and giving me oh. something to bounce off of oh, i loved it yeah, it was a good time so I think that's going to about do it. So from all of us, really the two of us here at Project Exploitation, we want to say thank you for listening. We are uh, available at our website, which is projectexploitation.com. We are available on Twitter, which is at projectspod. And for some weird reason, you find our Facebooks or whatever. We're both pretty uh, amenable people. So uh mm-hmm. Give us a shout out and we'll, uh, that's how I met Dan was because he listened to my podcast and, uh, it's true and, and reached out and I was like, oh God, I am not as social as this person, but (laughs) he does like the same movies as I do. So, okay, here goes nothing. Five years later, here we are. I I was experimenting with being more social too. It wasn't my natural state, but I was, I was getting, I was pushing myself towards it. Well, whether it was or wasn't, it clearly is now, uh, uh, which I say in a, in a positive light, because I should be more like that but from all of us here at project exploitation we just want to say we hope you had a wonderful thanksgiving and uh, we're looking forward to ringing in the new holiday and new year with you guys and uh, i know it's been a tough year but uh hopefully some of these conversations have done at least some semblance of distraction so have a wonderful night everybody because i'm assuming you're listening to this at night (laughs) and we'll talk to you next time Keep on projecting. I, I don't have an end.